In brightest day, in blackest night, all other podcasts tremble in fright. Losers cower before the power. Oranges lust and blues you can trust. Indigos feel and white ones heal. Yellow scare and green ones dare. That sapphire love and black hands glove will rock your foundation without hesitation. Chad and Mars face evil's might. Respect their power for they'll make you see the light. Hi everybody, I'm Chad Bokelman. I'm Mark Marble. And this is the Lantern Cast. Episode 278. That's right. We are talking Green Lanterns 16, 17, and 18. 16 and 17 being the uh, team-up issues between Jessica, Simon, and Batman. And 18 being the Volthoom side of the kind of secret origin issue. Um, but a couple things before we get into it. First and foremost, let's be honest. Actually, you know what? Let me be honest. You're alive. <laughs> That's a step in the right direction. Yeah. No, no, no. This It's not an illusion. It's not a clone. It's actually really <laughs> Chad recording. Yes. Uh, so why haven't I been here? Well, first and foremost, let instead of let's, uh, implying let us, let me be honest. Um, first and foremost, the, what I'm about to tell you is not the sole reason I, I haven't been around lately because let's face it, it hasn't really affected me except for fairly recently but the main reason i haven't been around and this is for those who've been listening to the show for since it's been around this is not a un, <laughs> uncommon theme in my life uh at the beginning of april i lost my job uh i was no longer i am no longer a salesman at a dealership um they let me go because i wasn't reaching a quota they want you to sell a minimum of 12 cars a month and i did not achieve that for two months in a row so they let me go and since my old technology support role was dissolved, which is why I had to go into car sales in the first place, since that was dissolved, there was nothing for me to fall back on, and therefore I was out of a job. Uh, and my say was, because I may may not have a lead on another job, um, I had a third interview um, uh, over at Apple as we record this yesterday. Um, and yes, Apple, that company. Um, <clears throat> but it's through, I, I'm kind of, playing it smart and safe it's through a uh employer contracting you know you work for a certain company but they contract you through other employers so if it works out fantastic i have an in an apple and i can prove myself and maybe be hired by apple and if it doesn't work out which (laughs) i'm not hoping it doesn't because apple's a great company to work for but if on the off chance it doesn't i work for an employment agency so they can get me another job if it doesn't work out so i'm playing it a little bit safe um I'm trying not to count my chickens before they hatch, but it's, you know, third interview. That's usually fairly promising, so we'll see how that all works out. But, yeah, it sucks. About the uh, 3rd of April or so, I lost my job um, <clears throat> three days before my 30th birthday. Uh, <laughs> and it wasn't I'll, on your birthday, Chad. That's, that's true. Uh, I will be uh, honest with you. I've been sort of in a um, – I've never been through one, so I can't really call it this, and I really doubt it is one. I've been sort of in a a mini midlife crisis kind of mode, you know. I turned 30, I lost my job. You know, you kind of, you know, when when that kind of happens to you, you you cross that threshold in in your age bracket, and (laughs) 
you lose a job, you, you can't help but focus and kind of reflect on, well, what am I doing? What do I really need to be doing? What should I be doing? I've been in a lot of that lately. <laughs> so obviously my focus is uh, sort of shifted and, you know, just out of necessity, my focus has kind of shifted since, you know, I got to find a way to pay bills. <laughs> Um, but, uh, other than that, yeah, I'm, uh, I've just been searching for jobs and, and doing that kind of stuff. Um, it really, it, 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 I, I, I can't help but be honest here. Part of the reason I haven't been around, I've been kind of depressed about it lately as, as you know, kind of happens, but, uh, I feel like the universe has a way of slapping me down as soon as I start getting my feet under me. Cause, uh, right before I got fired, I had, uh, realized I was turning 30. So I called all the places I have any personal debt. And I don't mean like car insurance and cell phone bill. I just mean loans or uh, car payment, you know, that kind of actual debt and, uh, told it all together in $10,970 and 63 cents. And I was told by several fellow employees that if you just kind of live up at the dealership for a month, uh, sell like 30 cars or something, you could make that easy in one month. And I was like, well, awesome. I will just give up my social life for a month and I will be debt free by the end of it. So I had a plan and <laughs> three days into my plan, I lose my job. <laughs> so it kind of sucks to have have resolve and have all of this only to have the rug pulled out from under you. So it was kind of a shock. Um, but you know, I'm getting back up on my feet and I'm feeling okay. So, uh, we're back for that. Don't mean to start off the episode on a down note, you know. Sure you don't. <laughs> but based on the material, maybe it's not so bad. <laughs> have nowhere, nowhere else to go but up, right? So okay. yeah, That's right. So Mark and I uh, haven't spoken in a while in terms of recording, so I had a idea for a uh, topic of conversation since Mark's uh, thing is Star Wars. Well, one of his things is Star Wars. I had a question. So... And this is kind of multifaceted, so I'll kind of attack each facet and then ask ask the question. The big thing, and we'll talk about it later on, I guess, but the new trailer for, uh, or the only trailer, the teaser for uh, The Last Jedi, has Luke saying, I only know one thing to be true, it's time for the Jedi to end. And there's a lot of speculation, but it seems the main focus of said speculation is that it's time for no more Jedi and no more Sith but a balance between the two. Does that kind of sound right? That's what a lot of people are thinking? That is certainly what a lot of people, the gray Jedi concept, yes. That is what a lot okay. of people are speculating. All right. So with that in mind, I didn't want to because <laughs> I kind of swore it off, but I realized I had not watched the prequels in quite a long time. I know the original trilogy mostly by heart, so I was like, well, any force information there, I already know it's in the back of my head, but I hadn't watched the prequels in forever. So I was like, all right, so today I watched all the prequels and I just finished it like a couple of minutes before we started uh, recording with the uh, revenge of the Sith. But, um, <clears throat> I realized that in all three of the prequels and in the originals, nobody actually says the prophecy, Correct. not quote. I think they say what the prophecy is. Some, a chosen one will bring balance to the force. They think it's Anakin. They assume it's Anakin. Uh, well, not they, being the entire Jedi Council with Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon. <clears throat> uh, and, and this is kind of part of my question, but not really. I'm wondering if the key word there in that will bring balance to the Force isn't balance, but bring. As in, Anakin won't be the balance, but will bring the balance. As in, through him, we get Luke and Leia, and through Luke and Leia, we get, you know, and so on and so forth. 
Um, I, that's neither here nor there. So my question to you is, <clears throat> and I'm going to follow my question up with 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 another, a quote, with another question, but <laughs> with, with, with a quote I pulled from Attack of the Clones. Is the Force a reservoir, <laughs> or is it a pendulum? And by reservoir, I don't mean something uh, like in the Green Lantern core that can run dry. I just mean a source to tap into and pull from. Or is it a pendulum that swings from dark to light? And the reason I ask this is because in Attack of the Clones, and I'm sure this was debated high, heavily when Attack of the Clones first came out, but obviously it's been a long, long time, and I wasn't really privy to those debates. Yoda says, Blind we are if creation of this clone army we could not see. And Mace Windu says, I think it is time we inform the Senate that our ability to use the Force has diminished. Yoda says, Only a Dark Lord of the Sith knows our weakness. If informed, the Senate is multiply our adversaries' will. That's why I'm asking if it's a pendulum. How is it the Jedi's ability to use a Force is diminished? They never really tackle that in the, in the prequels. They never say why the Jedi's ability to use the Force is diminished. No, they don't. I, to, me, to me, that was always about the... that the dark side... the power of the dark side has grown stronger. And because the dark side's power has grown stronger, more influential has reached out into more facets of the universe... Because of that, that has impacted. That has a allowed there, create allowed more deception and more. This like the shadow of the dark side has fallen, which I think is another quote Yoda makes in Attack of the Clones. That the idea that because of the dark, the, the Sith has written, and it's not. And you have to put it in perspective. Is the reason why it's probably true is because it's not just that the Sith has just gotten this little bit, little bit of surge of power. You know, you know during the Plagueis Palpatine era, that this is really something that's been building since Darth Bane had been building forward for you know for thousands of years, pretty much, or over a thousand years since the Sith were supposedly wiped out, but were never really wiped out, and they were just and the Rule of Two was established. That slowly but surely, I think it's the dark side has gained more power, more influence, has has its tendrils and more different things, and as that has happened. Plus, with the arrogance of the Jedi, which is another thing that gets touched upon in Attack of the Clones, that the Jedi are not able to maybe perceive truth from truth from deception as easily as they used to, and their arrogance may blind them to maybe something they un otherwise would pick up on if they had any reason to suspect it really was a, could be a threat. But because they don't perceive that there could be a threat, they kind of overlook it, overlook it, or downplay it. So, I guess based on your on your initial question, I would say. It's probably more of a. It's, I think it's more of a reservoir, not where it's naturally going to swing back and forth. But one side has, one side has its day, and then the other side has its day. I think the power is there to be tapped into. It's just that the Sith had tapped into it more, or it maybe corrupt corrupted the reservoir enough where the Jedi's ability, the Jedi and their ability to use it successfully, had diminished. That's, that was that was that's that was that was my take on it. I know you can make a case for the pendulum swinging back and forth, that like everything else, because everything in life is cyclical. So you could say that, but that really would kind of not explain. It really wouldn't balance it out all that much when the Sith really were not back in power for a particularly long period of time, based on how long the Jedi were back in power. 
Yeah. Well, the reason I say that is because they use specifically the word diminished. And I, as, as much as I, I, you know, I just watched the prequel, so I get what you're saying about the arrogance. They refer to it, and they almost kind of smile at it. You know, they, they, they kind of smile at the arrogance of the young or something like that. Well, I, think that and, a, I think that was a shot at at the time, I think that was just a shot at Obi-Wan when Yoda, when Yoda is Yoda's kind of making that comment when he's floating around in his little chair. Even right. Though, even though I don't think Obi-Wan quite gets that. It's a little that's a little jab at him, too, that, that, that I think it's – that's what Yoda's talking about, that, you know. But, yeah, I know what you mean. Right. And But the, specifically the word diminished, and here I'll turn to Yoda. I can see the arrogance of the Jedi. I can see it uh, in certain Jedi – I don't want to say it's uh, it's wholly present, but I feel like there's a sliver of it in Mace, uh, Mace Windu, because he was going to kill the Emperor. Um, now I don't know if that would directly credit to uh, to uh, to arrogance, but that is a. I mean, regardless of 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 how evil or threatening the power of Sidious is, uh, I mean you. Is it's it's still against Jedi code to kill somebody? Correct. So, but I see, but but I see Yoda, and I don't see Yoda as ever being an arrogant Jedi. No. So if 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 their power is overall diminished, and Yoda agrees with what Mace is saying about diminishes being diminished and weakened. But Yoda himself is not arrogant. Then it is that isn't it affecting all of the light side, Yoda included. That's why I'm thinking the pendulum effect. Well, I see. I don't think. I I I under, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. I don't think. Let's say Yoda, Yoda and Mace. Like let's let's look at Yoda and Mace because Yoda and Mace were the two most powerful Jedi that existed in the end of the of the you know the Repub the old Republic era. Now I know it's, go, it's gone back and forth, and people argue whether Palpatine took a dive or whether you know. But on this, on this, yeah, for what it's worth, you have to go back to Luke. You know, Lucas is the one who cre who wrote this. Lucas is the one who. So you have to go back to what Lucas said and Lucas's view on it. And I believe Lucas has said that Palpatine. Did, yes, Palpatine tried to manipulate things when when he was when he was beaten and when Anakin showed up, but he did not take a dive. That that Mace Windu did beat him. The Mace Windu did knock him down and could theoretically have killed if he killed him one, two, three, could have killed him before Anakin was even in position to do anything or get into the room. So Mace so I don't think it's that the pure power I think it's just the ability to sense the force, the ability to, to use the force as far as being able to pick up on things all around you and I think that's what to me, that's what the interp that's what diminished meant. That their ability to tap into it the way they did before and use it entirely the way they did before, I think that's what the diminished mean. I don't necessarily meant. I don't think it's because there was more pure. The force had shifted where there was just no more natural dark side energy, and they had less light side energy to tap into because of the pendulum effect. I just think it was just there that. The dark side had clouded everything, and by clouding everything, it it made their ability to use the force effectively. It was it was much harder to do that. Um, and don't forget, by the, by the time you get to the by the time you get to Sith, that a, that a lot that a lot of that a lot of the mystery, a lot of the the illusion that has been perpetuated as had the you know the veil had lifted because truly 
because they, at that point they knew who they knew who you know Darth Sidious was. They knew who was the mastermind. Orders, you know, Order 66 had taken place before Yoda confronted Palpatine. So at that point, it was it was a little more clear cut about you know. I, so I don't know. I know. So I assume you'd think it's more the pendulum effect. Yeah, that's why. I mean, because when you say balance. I mean, the, the pendulum swinging back and forth. I mean, we're talking about because they talk about uh, in the beginning of Phantom Menace how the Sith haven't been around for a long time, implying that at one point there were thousands or hundreds or whatever of Sith. Yes, the Sith used to be in power, and then the Jedi came, and so it's 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 almost seems like from their own history it has been a pendulum. The Sith have risen, the Jedi have risen to the point where they have a freaking massive temple and their tendrils into the senate on coruscant so i mean i'm like we're talking like it's it's almost like a, a massive you know building academy capital type of thing on coruscant and there's hundreds of jedi and they believe no sith or the sith have been secretly operating in the background you know whatever right but then this pendulum swing swings back and Anakin goes over to the dark side, and Palpatine and Anakin become, you know, the main powers in the universe, and the Jedi are all destroyed, which is another theory people have about balance to the Force. After Order 66 and all this, you have Anakin and uh, and Palpatine and Yoda and Obi-Wan. So two for two, balance. Yeah, but, suppose, but most of that has most... I think that's pretty much been shot down too, at least as far as from a from a Lucas perspective. That he has, he always said that the balance the balance of the Force concept had nothing to do with the, you know, the equal number of Sith or Jedi. Well, so, that's why, but that's why I'm saying pendulum. It keeps. It seems from, like I said, the rise of the Sith, then the defeat of the Sith, and the rise of the Jedi, then the, the, the defeat of the Jedi to where there's only two left, and the rise of the Sith in terms of not just their fact there being two of them, but they're in charge of the entire universe. In form of the empire, it's when I say pendulum. I think what, what you know, if we go with what uh, Luke is saying in the trailer as being balanced to the Force in terms of no Sith and no Jedi, but something in between. Because it, you know, rewatching these prequels, <laughs> pushing past the horrible, horrible Hayden Christensen stuff, um, you, I see a lot. Like I'm watching this, and yes, you know, instinctively you're looking at light side versus dark side, and you want to feel good about the Jedi. But there are so many points during every one of these prequel movies where I'm watching the Jedi and I'm going, I'm not agreeing with everything they're saying inherently. Like, you know, it seems like, now don't get me wrong, there are things like that are said to Anakin or various other Jedi, like search your feelings and so on and so forth. But it seems like from a basic point of view, the Sith are feel, 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 and the Jedi are think, think, think. And there are bad aspects to both of those schools of thought. So I can't help but watch these with you know the latest trailer in mind and think I don't see the Jedi's point of view a hundred hundred percent of the time. As well as I see some of the cis point of view sometimes. So like I can't help but think that the idea of balance to the force means stopping the swing of the pendulum. But mm. I, I, I guess I can see I mean, I'm, I'm and don't get me wrong I'm not a hundred percent on either side of the, ironically or appropriately uh, based on the pendulum versus reservoir concept to me it's just it's always 
to me, it's always a. I see it more as a reservoir that can be used. It can be used basically. I guess it could be used three ways, depending on how it's tapped into and how it's tapped into and and where. Maybe it's like a combination of the two. Maybe it's a combination of whichever side of the force is dominant and or has greater control at the time. They have the ability to tap into that. They have the ability to, if they choose to, to use that reservoir evenly, light, dark, in balance. Or what usually happens is whichever side is in power or has greater influence taps into the side that they feel is is right is right, and that and that automatically kind of drains more power from the reservoir. Uh, I don't know. I think. Because I'm, I, I don't mean to interrupt. Because I'm yeah. wondering also if that's why we're seeing now. Don't get me wrong. I know in the EU that there are more of these types of characters, and obviously since the Disney acquisition, a lot of that EU has been tossed out. But it, it, go with me here. I think in terms of the movies, I think it's the reason we're seeing a lot a, of Force believers, Force users, but not necessarily Jedi or Sith. We see Maz Kanata, and we see what's his name from from Rogue One. You know, I'm one with a force. Oh, sure. The force is with me. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, yeah, I'm wondering if that's why we're seeing more of these people actually in the films. Because they are, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're good people, but they're neither Jedi nor Sith. Yeah, but, but well, yes, but they are, but they clearly lean towards the light. True, but have, have we ever seen those people before? Because I'm watching the prequels and I remember the originals and I don't remember seeing any of these people in any of those movies. No, but uh, aside from straight Jedi or straight Sith. No, yeah, but but the folk, but the focus of that, but the focus of that tr- trilogy, based on what had to happen, you weren't gonna. You, I guess in theory you could always have gotten something, but it was gonna be hard to get any of that because the focus of the things you absolutely had to see, the beats that had to be touched upon kind of prevented a lot of I guess in a way even though it was more to prove that Anik, that uh, Palpatine could seduce a Jedi that in a way Dooku was his character was similar to that because Dooku because Dooku obviously was a Jedi and then Dooku kind of became you know disgruntled and with you know with the way Jedi the Jedi did things and the way they operated much like Qui-Gon did but just obviously not to Qui-Gon just didn't get to that point so but so yeah, because Dooku was obviously not all bad to start with, and I don't know. I think it's it would have been hard. It would have been hard in that trilogy since you had there were so many things you knew you had to see, and the focus was on Anakin's fall. So you, I think you see more of that even in maybe in the Clone Wars animated show. I think you get a little bit, you get a little bit touch, a little bit more of a touch. Uh, of what balance and the force could mean, or possible interpretations of what balance and the force could mean, which is the ultimate, which is the ultimate, you know, question mark, because we don't know, and it was never made clear in general what bringing balance to the force meant. Kind of like even mm. in Sith, when they t- when they touch upon the, you know, the the prophecy misread, because in the, in the book, the novelization for Jedi touches upon this, the idea that there's nothing. But again, you were correct. There's nothing in any of the three novelizations. Of the, of the of the prequels that tells you what the prophecy is, what what the written prophecy actually is, but it's pretty it's made clear in in the novelization for Sith that there's nothing in the prophecy that says that it, that it has to be a Jedi who fulfills it. Hmm. So that's why that's why when Anakin technically does fulfill, as far as we know, unless they retcon it in 
you know, eight and nine, that Anakin does bring balance to the Force. It's just he brought he just ended up turning to the <laughs> turning to the dark side and becoming a Sith before he eventually did bring balance. It just didn't go. It it was a Jedi centric interpretation of the prophecy, which again goes to the arrogance and everything else. But yeah, because it's either Obi Wan or Yoda in the original trilogy. Don't they say something about you know the Jedi Order? made many mistakes they they did stuff the way we used to do things was was flawed i i, I'm I don't think that towards was an, yoda saying that i don't think that well not i don't think that was in it could have been in a novelization i don't think it was in the movie i don't think they were in the, in in the movies um uh but that is but but the sentiment is the sentiment is something that you, and we talked about this in another episode you, when Yoda's fighting, and this is one, not that I think this is a great novelization, but all novelizations for all the movies always have things in them that should have been in the movie because they add so much clarity. This would have been hard because it's internal, you know, dialogue. That when Yoda's fighting Palpatine, he has this epiphany that he realizes where the Jedi went wrong and how there still was a path to victory, which is one of the reasons he had to get out of there. Because if he died fighting Palpatine, his great his great moment of clarity was going to was going to go for naught, which is one of the reasons why when he when he and Obi Wan were talking before they both went into exile, Obi Wan's original plan was not just to take Luke to Tatooine. His plan was to take Luke to Tatooine, but train him at a, at a very young age, like Padawan should have been trained, to try to erase or eliminate the potential problems and pitfalls that Anakin had by training him too late when he already had the attachment issues and everything else. Yoda's the one who told him, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to wait till he comes to us. When he's ready to be trained, we train him. So Yoda was, was the one who started to figure out, not, and obviously probably talk, in the big picture, talking to Qui-Gon too probably gave him some of this, but Yoda was able to figure out what, what, this, what the Jedi did wrong as far as, you know, their kind of, and this is, we talked about this too, comparing the Jedi to the, to the Guardians that, Makes a lot the of expulsion, sense. The expulsion of the emotions. And just and being really rigid about their rules, not being flexible, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater instead of realizing this person, you know, this person in particular is so valuable to us and has given us so much, can't we kind of like bend the rules a little bit this one time? That at least the Jedi Council themselves are equivalent to the Guardians. So, see, it is related to Green Lantern people. We made, we made that tie-in. But well, I was, I was going to make the tie-in, too, when you were talking about the Reservoir. The way you were describing the people tapping into the Force almost sounds like Blue Lanterns. If there's a bunch of people around you feeling hope, the will, the ring can do more. And if there's a bunch of if there if you're not around, if you're not in a very hopeful place, the ring can do less. Now, don't get me wrong; I know the whole Blue Lanterns in the vicinity of a Green Lantern thing. But like you you remember when Saint Walker and Warth turned back the. You know, I, I'll yeah. They, t- they turned back the clock on that that red nova into a blue sun because they tapped into the collective hope of the planet below. Right. Yep. I agree. Okay. So <clears throat> yeah, and I th- we'll we'll know more again. Again, we're even referring to that Luke quote about you know this time for the Jedi to end, which can which obviously can mean multiple things. Right. We we know that yes, it is the the it is the gray Jedi concept potentially. Which may relate to, the, relate to the books on the shelf about how Luke probably we can we can suppose Luke has found you know, some of the early teachings of the Jedi, which basically maybe lead you in that direction. That this is the way the Jedi had the original Jedi wanted this to be. The founders of the Jedi Order. This is how they saw it, 
and then over the and then over the years, much like you know people like different religions and different things else, different sects come to power, and then they kind of push their agenda and maybe suppress other and eliminate other other doctrines and things that used to be part of the of the text. So that's that's very possible. It's also possible that if that quote happens, kind of if the quote goes along with the image that we see with Luke stepping out of that cave, it would also make sense that that would happen relatively early in the movie. When Luke yeah. is really, really disgruntled, he may not even have decided to train Ray yet, and then maybe his take on he could just be so in a funk and so and yeah, so, he's just given up because yes, of all the yes, all the people so, who's who died under his watch and just and just all the just yeah the inability to succeed yeah and what and what he thought his mission was in his life that maybe he's just given up and once he and once Ray touches him because obviously he begins training her the once he sees something in her and senses something different then maybe either it's a combination of the two of um, the more of the gray jedi concept or maybe he realizes that that yes the jedi that the jedi can can continue or should continue but not the jedi that he, that he originally were led to believe that 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 form of jedi so it's kind of like a combination a combination of the two, because don't forget going back, and I, that the interesting thing is that you know we all assumed, and obviously the expanded universe brought it brought it to life, that we all assumed Luke was meant to restart the Jedi Order, and that Luke was supposed to bring back bring back the Jedi. Basically, he was supposed to bring back the Jedi. But all Yoda technically told him was, you know, pass on what you have learned. So maybe now we're at the point where Luke has learned really what he should, what he needed to learn, and now he can pass that on. Now he has hmm. the knowledge he didn't have before, and Ray is going to be the person he passes it on to. Because you could speculate even with Kylo that obviously Kylo did really shitty things that he shouldn't have done. But you could see a moment between Luke and Kylo where Luke basically is trying to say, what you did was wrong, but what you felt wasn't. Being hmm. torn between the two sides, that's normal. That There's nothing wrong with that. Which again goes hmm. back to part of the I – I always go back to the novelization – the novelization in Jedi, when that was cut out, you know, much must have been part of the script at one point. When Obi Wan says to Luke on Dagobah, you know, the ultimate test, the final test of a Jedi is when you take that first step to the dark side, you realize it, you reject it, and you step back. Hmm. When you had that in context, what Luke did at the end of the movie makes 100% perfect sense. Without it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and you're still thinking in your mind, well, Yoda said once you once you start, you know, once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. With that little bit by Obi Wan, the Jedi make you know what Luke what Luke did makes absolutely perfect sense at the end of the movie and why he really was a Jedi at that moment because that's the part that Anakin was supposed he could never get beyond. Do we uh, do we think and I don't mean to drag this any longer because no, we do have it's fun. but do do we think that um, Snoke is a Sith uh, Lord Sith Master? The reason I say that is because of the rule of two. Yeah, but the rule, of, as you, as we've seen in all honesty, not surprising. The rule, the rule of two was always pseudo stretched in the sense that yes, technically speaking, there were only two Sith at a given time. But almost everybody who was a Sith had somebody who they who was you know they were training, they had their eyes on, they were using as an assassin. There was a force sensitive. They almost always had somebody in mind. Because if you go back. To, if you go back to the novelization, again, to Darth Plagueis, that book, which technically is a legend book now, which really isn't in canon, but until anything comes out to contradict it, there's no reason to think a lot of this stuff isn't in, technically can't be in canon because we know what the character is. So, so, But in that book, which is one of the things I didn't like about that book at all, 
is that besides the fact that Plagueis was alive for the, according to that book, Plagueis was alive throughout 90% of Phantom Menace, that he didn't get killed until after Palpatine, shortly after Palpatine was elected Chancellor, and more or less when all the action was switching back, everybody was going back to Naboo. That's when they were celebrating Palpatine's victory. That's when he supposedly drugged Plagueis, and that's when he killed him. So Darth Maul technically was not really a Sith Lord until shortly before he died on, in the Battle of Naboo. So he was just a Sith assassin, which Plagueis never had any, really didn't think much of, but he allowed Palpatine to have him because he served a purpose sending him on the missions that he had. So, yeah, well, because the reason I asked is because, I mean, I get what you're saying, people in the background, because you see Plagueis and you see Maul, and then in the next movie you see Dooku, and in the next movie you see Grievous. Um so it always seems like two, but the reason I bring it up is, and it's a thought that very recently uh, was, I don't know if it was uh, Give Me Those Star Wars with Ryan Daly or if it was something else I read online, but so, somewhere out there is also the idea in the waterworks that if uh, Snoke is a Sith and he see, seems super interested in Rey and her raw power of the Force, the same way Plagueis gave up was willing to give up Vader in in favor of mean, Luke because he saw mean, Luke's power. You mean Sidious, not Plagueis? Yeah, yeah. It said the same way Sidious was um, willing to give up um, uh, Vader in favor of the power that Luke had, uh, that maybe Snoke would be willing to give up Kylo in favor of Rey. And what if Rey goes to the dark side and Kylo comes back? I know and it's some, it's it's a big swap. Some, at the, some people have. Sp- some people have speculated on that. Here, here's the reason. Here's the reason. The multiple reasons why I don't think this is going to be the case. At this point, maybe we should make two episodes. Maybe this should just be a Star Wars episode. Uh, there's our double release for next week. Uh, <laughs> the reason why I don't think that is going to happen is number one. Let's be honest. Maybe, maybe Kylo Ren could do something really super heroic in Episode Nine to somewhat redeem himself. At this point, he's such a douchebag of a character who is who we have seen do nothing but bad. How are we going to – how would – if he turns back like in episode eight, is, is anybody going to really care or trust him? No one's going to care. But more importantly, we've already – I mean how many times are we going to see the good – you know, the apprentice turn to the dark side? We've already we, – we saw we saw Anakin do it. We know Kylo did it. To have Rey do it, and especially since Rey has become this, oh, this poster child for, you know, for female empowerment in, in, in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, let's turn her to the dark side. That's really going to go over well. I don't. I, I'm not saying she's not going to be tempted, but I don't. I don't see that. And besides, I mean, what 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 would that do to Luke? <laughs> I mean, Luke's just going to put a saber to his head and finish the job if he loses friggin' Ray to the dark side. And I don't mean. I don't think getting. I don't think getting Kylo back is necessarily going to ne- really negate that, considering everything Kylo did. I don't think that's going to happen. I have no doubt Snoke would want it to happen. Whether I mean, I would. You know, I would love Snoke to be Plagueis, but for lots of reasons, it doesn't look like that's viable. And then, of course, them denying it does not necessarily mean that's not viable because not, it's not like they're going to tell you if it, he is, if, that, if they want to reveal that to you. But that would make plenty of sense based on his ability to, you know, mani- to you know, to manipulate the Force and the midichlorians and everything else to not, you know, to prevent things from dying. It would make sense that he would have a way of of uh, protecting himself. Which I don't think they ever delved, delved into that in the because that was part of the reason why Palpatine and Sidious were on different paths in, in the Darth Plagueis book in the Phantom Menace because Palpat, Palpatine was 
pulling the strings, even though he seemed see that's what bothered me about that book too. Palpatine was seemingly pulling in the movie was pulling the strings, and that's the puppet master we know. But Plagueis was behind him in all of that. Plagueis helped get him to the place that he was in the Senate and everything else. It's just that during the events of Phantom Menace, that's when Plagueis was locked away, mastering that ability, finally mastering that ability to basically bring the dead back. It's not like it was it wasn't one hundred percent preventing you from dying. It's just that it's like you could reanimate the tissue. If it died, you could bring it back. Things like that. He mastered that ability. And that's another thing that was stupid in the book. Palpatine knows he's mastered this ability because he told him this. Plagueis' idea was the rule of two ends now because we're, we're going to be the last two. There's no need for anybody to come after us because we're going to live forever, which, of course, sounds like a great deal if you're the one on top, which is why Palpatine didn't like it. But you think Palpatine would have waited a little bit longer to at least learn that ability because it kind of was an important one to have. <laughs> but his ego, again, his ego and his arrogance – prevented him from doing that and that's why he killed him when he killed him when he did but that's why they were separate and that's why you know that's but that ability you know that's why it would be cool if it was Plagueis it would make sense he, he you know he's a canon character but we'll see it I it I am very curious to see what the deal is with Snoke and what kind of explanation we get for who he is and where he came from also, that that line of thought also makes me wonder: What if Sidious is still alive somewhere? Yeah. I... Well, no, no. The reason I ask is because at the end of, or not the end, in in uh, Revenge of the Sith, uh, obviously Plagueis, uh, not Plagueis, uh, Sidious doesn't know the secrets that Plagueis learned. Okay, because he's telling him the story, and then later on, Sidious tells. Uh, Anakin, that you can, we can learn that the secrets together. Then he tells Vader at the end that Padme is dead and that he killed him, or he killed her. So that Vader's reason, his whole uh, will to learn those secrets is now gone because Padme's already gone. So why why would he help Sidious learn those secrets? There's no point anymore. So I wonder if Sidious, on his own, in his own time while running the Empire, figured out those secrets. No, I, I personally, I think no. I think every, every, everything he... Don't get me wrong, I think it's a stretch. I don't personally believe it, but I'm also not discounting the possibility. It makes me wonder, it, if Sidious was interested in it so much, because I where did that interest... Did, why did the interest just evaporate? Because honestly, I don't think he was that interested in it. I think it was just... I, I don't think he... I think this is what... I think to a certain extent, Palpatine, as egotistical as he was, he was a believer in the rule of two, which is why he says to Yoda, you know, Darth, you know, Darth Vader will be more powerful than either of us, because that was his original plan, that, that, Vader was, that Vader was going to be the Sith that was going to be more powerful than he was eventually, to follow him, which is the whole point of the rule of two. It's not just that it's a master and apprentice. It's that eventually the, the apprentice will grow stronger than the master, and thus, theoretically, the Sith is always growing stronger because while it may not always be ca the case, you could probably – I'm sure there's some very notable exceptions based on powerful Sith during the line of the rule of two, that the concept is that the, the 12th Sith down the road is stronger than the first Sith because of the you – know, Basically, he's the man, you know, using just the generic, you know, sex term there, gender term. He's the man that beat the man that beat the man, dot, 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 going all the way back. Just, you know, that that makes – that's why the Sith were more powerful theoretically one-on-one -on -one than they, as compared to most Jedi because of the fact that 
what they had to what they had to accomplish and learn to get there. I don't think Palpatine really ever gave a shit about learning that because if he did, he would have suppressed his ego a little bit longer to learn the secrets from from Plagueis. He didn't because he didn't care about that. He said that to Anakin because that's how he hooked Anakin in because he knew what Anakin's he knew what Anakin's shatter point was. Anakin's weakness was was Padme. And so that's why it's the ultimate makes Anakin look like a total idiot. That after he helped kill or lead to Mace Windu's death, Palpatine basically comes clean and says, "Hey, remember that crap, that stuff I just told you about? You know, I, you know basically you, how you need me to learn the, you know, to have the power to save Padme. Well, now I'm telling you, I really don't know that at all, after all. But if you, but I'm sure if we work together, we can find it. It was his way to try to appease Anakin to not have Anakin go off the deep end, going, "You just fed me a line of shit. Look at what I did.'" Just because Anakin still might have come back at that point saying, theoretically, nobody knows what just happened between Mace Windu and my role in Mace Windu's death. You know, I could probably, you know, I could maybe take this guy out and then no one's going to know everything that transpired here. It was his way to appease Anakin, just like I think telling him Padme died and he was, was the one who killed him was to take away, like you said, take away any real interest Anakin had in learning that power because Anakin certainly didn't really want it entire. Anakin was such a pathetic figure even at that point that he the idea and in such physical pain that the idea of living forever you know without a ma- a, without massive healing living forever was not going to be anything that was going to be something Anakin was going to would want even if he could find it. So I don't think I don't think Sidious learned it and I don't think Sidious wanted to learn it. If it is, if we find out then I think it's just a retcon. They just end up retconning it now which if which is which is always possible. I mean just like if they just like if they want to retcon it now to say Anakin wasn't the chosen one. Luke wasn't even the chosen one, but Ray's going to be the. That would be a retcon because the one. Now he's been inconsistent about a thousand things, but one of the things Lucas was always consistent about is that Vader slash Anakin was the chosen one. It's not Luke. It's it's Anakin. So even though, and some people have picked up on this too. That, oh, during the clone, the end of the, the second to last episode of the Clone War show. I mean, excuse me, Rebels this year. When Obi Wan finally gets takes out Darth Maul finally and sets everything back the way he kind of was, where Obi Wan does kill Darth Maul, that when Darth Maul is dying, he like kind of in a tender kind of in a tender moment because Obi Wan has no animosity at all towards Maul at that point. The only reason he even fought him was because Maul picked up on the fact that Obi Wan was there protecting some, not just something but someone, and then that's when Obi Wan knew Maul's got to go. He can't live. That when Maul's dying in his arms, you know. He kind of like Maul's like reaching up to him, kind of almost like gingerly or tenderly, going, you know, is he the chosen one? And and Obi Wan looks down on him. Yes, he is. And Maul says, uh, he'll, you know, he will revenge us or re- revenge us all or whatever. But that doesn't mean anything because because Obi Wan probably really believed because of what happened to Anakin. Obi Wan probably really believed. Excuse me. Obi Wan probably really believed at that point that Luke was the chosen one. It would make sense because he thought there was no – remember, it was a more machine than man thing conversation with Luke. He didn't think there was any essence of Anakin really left in Vader anymore. So he probably truly believed Luke was the chosen one. But people jumped on that saying, oh, they're retconning it so Anakin's not the – no. They could retcon it. They haven't retconned it yet. And I really kind of hope that they don't just – because that would be kind of – it's kind of like – I know Lucas doesn't own it anymore, but it's kind of a slap in the face if you really go back and start – Doing stuff like that with you know, taking away the essence of what his story was. I know people, some people would say, "Ah, oh, it's payback for you know the special editions and all these." Act, but the reality is, this is still Lucas's baby. And to, to try to ch- if they change a fundamental element of the story he was trying to tell, 
I would have a problem with that. All right. Well, now that we're like 30, 35 minutes into the episode and sufficiently warmed up, (laughs) you ready to talk some Green Lanterns? Good night, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk, let's talk Volthoom issue and skip the rest of this garbage. (laughs) Uh, So what I'm ready. What Mark and I are going to do, guys, is we're going to tackle issues 16 and 17. I'm going to review 16. He's going to review 17. Then we're going to talk about it. We're not going to do the one issue review, recap, review, recap, review, recap. We're going to take these two issues back to back. Uh, So I'm going to start us off with uh, issue number 16 of Green Lanterns. Uh, This one is entitled, if I can get over to it. Sorry, I'm using this... uh, App I'm unfamiliar with on my phone, my iPhone to read digital comics. <clears throat> this one here is called the storyline is called Darkest Nights Part One, uh, and um, let's see here the uh, the oh, where are the creative where's the creative team is it towards the end on no here it is Sam Humphreys writer Neil Edwards pencils Jay Leestein and Keith Champagne on inks, blonde colors. Travis Lanham is the letters. James Harren did the cover. Emanuela Lupacino and Michael Ativan did the variant cover. Andrew Marino, assistant editor. Mike Cotton, editor. And Eddie Bergonzo, <laughs> group editor. And Batman created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. <clears throat> Once and forever. You know him, you, know you don't love him. You can't get rid of him, Eddie Bergonzo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do very much, uh, in depth here cause I'm going to save all the in depth for the Volthoom issue. The, um, the good, one. A, yeah. <laughs> the good issue the real, or the really good issue. If you want to be kind, it is, it is the, the interesting issue. That's, that's the, that's, that's about as objective as we can say without being offensive. It is the, the really interesting issue of, of the three. <laughs> So in a diamond district, you see a man going crazy, wielding a bat, saying he has to kill us all if that's what it takes. Um, and we see, as this is happening, it's intercut with scenes of the Green Lanterns, Simon and Jessica, racing over the skies of uh, of Gotham. Batman enters the scene. The man who wielding the bat screams, it's the Batman. Um, as he's going up against him, the Green Lanterns show up. And take out the man with the bat, hold him, and say he's late. They've uh, uh, a little while later, Commissioner Gordon and the GCPD are on the scene, and they're talking uh, about how Batman, because of another story arc happening in his title at that moment, uh, is low on sidekicks <laughs> or some help, and. Um, the Green Lanterns will be on the case. They're trying to get them, catch them up, give them on the, all the facts. The reason the Green Lanterns have been called in is because it has to do with fear. And Simon's like, well, duh. Clearly, that means it's Scarecrow. <laughs> you dumbass. <laughs> it's a, let's be honest. It's a very arrogant exchange between the both of them, and so that's why it's kind of funny. I mean, for Batman, you kind of expect it, but the fact but, – but Well, fact, what Gordon says is funny, too. He goes right. – he goes, he thinks we forgot about the Scarecrow? Who is this guy? <laughs> but but, but it, the, the thing that's really interesting, you know, spoiler alert for like five minutes from now, the fact that they're both kind of right is what's really interesting about the conversation. <laughs> so they're talking about how there's no commonality between any of the victims. There's no commonality 
you know, in the, the, the method, the scarecrow delivers his fear via medium, liquid, gas, germs. No traces of anything like that have been found. No devices. The scarecrow is one man. He can't be in 12 places at once. Batman says suicide, riots, attacks, multiple incidents, seemingly unconnected, all happening simultaneously. These are highly coordinated. I believe we're facing the yellow rings we saw during the Blackest Night. This is the work of the Sinestro Corps. Hence why the Green Lanterns have been called in duty. Uh, Even though it is the JV team, come on. <laughs> exactly. Well, while all this is happening, uh, uh, Commissioner Gordon notices the gun strapped to the side of Simon Baz's uh, leg. Simon says, uh, I'm sorry, this is my backup. And then him and Batman get into an argument about guns. Simon's saying it saved my ass a couple of times. There always needs a plan B. Aren't you the guy that always has a plan B? And Batman still says, you know, just basically no guns, no guns, no guns. And then obviously we get a flash of why Batman doesn't want any guns. But if you want to operate my CD, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, Jessica interrupts all this saying, pulling up these fear Batman videos that have been spreading across the net. The ring is detecting emotional spectrum energy. Uh, they go to the bat cave to trace things down. Batman pulls it up. And as the, the fear Batman screens are, uh, videos are on the screen, Alfred gets infected and goes up and against Baz, knocks his gun out of his holster. Alfred grabs Simon's gun and points it at Simon's head saying, if there's so much as a glitter from any of your rings, I'll pull the trigger. Don't try to stop me. I have to kill the bat. And then they detect emotional spectrum energy, and it's scanning and over in the industrial quarter of Gotham City. They detect a uh, signal of fear, and and people in this little call center office, whatever, are watching their computer monitors. They're all infected, and we see off panel in brightest day and blackest day in brightest night. Beware your fears. Fears made into light, and it is a Sinestro Corps member. Um. Uh, the scarecrow, but not really. But we'll get into that next issue. <laughs> All right, you're up, Mark. I'm up. I wasn't kidding. In like five, geez, in five minutes, you were right. Uh, okay, I'm just debating whether I need to keep my glasses on for this. No, I'm taking them off. I'm living dangerously. Uh, <laughs> it'll make it all blurry. Maybe it'll make it better. I'm only kidding. <laughs> All right, I, I, I kid because I care. These these issues are not that bad. It's just this it's just not overly thrilling either to me. Uh, okay, so this is uh, Green Lantern seventeen, Darkest Nights Part Two. Uh, let's see, Humphreys, Humphreys writer, Eduardo Panseca pencils, Julio Ferreira inks, blonde colors, Dave Sharp letters, James Harron does the cover, variant cover, Emmanuel Lupacino and Michael Atea. Uh, Andrew Marino, Mike Cotton, and Eddie Berganza remain the editorial crew. So I do like the way that the uh, the issue begins with a little confront, little con- pseudo con- or seeming confrontation between the Scarecrow and Batman, though it's not really actually taking place at the moment. But you get a nice little background of or a little primer, and, it'll, and as you're catching up to where Scarecrow kind of is at this point in his life about uh, you know, how fear makes us human, fear is natural, everything else. And how you know basically how 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 much he you know he craved fear and how it made him feel you know so beautiful until he got until he overdosed on it and burned him out and then he couldn't feel fear anymore and he basically couldn't feel anything he became a shell a shadow of a human and that's when he got the Sinestro Corps ring for the first time and that basically not only made him feel alive again but not only could he feel fear he could he could actually wield it and then. I like I like this little pseudo retcon here. That basically, so when he had somehow when he had the ring, 
So Within now, that 20, 24 hour period. Yes. Somehow during that, during that deputy 24 hour period that he took, he took the ring, he, he basically took some time to analyze the ring to try to come up with a basic concept of how it worked. And, you know, he, 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 he had not, he, he admits and acknowledges that the, the full power of it was really beyond him, but he learned enough. And then by the time the, the ring came to him a second time, that was what, during Sinestro, right? During the Sinestro series? Uh, yes, yes. He, yes. He was one of the ones uh, along with Deathstroke and Harley Quinn. Yep. So after it left him the second time, he was prepared now. So basically, he he hooked up he hooked up like this this machine and for the, for the light, I like the little Sinestro Corps dial on it. I'm dialing up to eleven, man. <laughs> that he was able to just to do enough to be able to you know put some you know put some fear out there so he could kind of feel it and feed off it but it's not the same thing as he says until i perfect it until i'm whole again until i am consumed by fear now we come back to the bat cave and i do really like that i just shit myself look on simon's face <laughs> it's like raw, raw. i need a new pair of pampers so we pick up really i like it's a very nice picking up point because it goes back to exactly the now, I don't know if it's a literal, exact verbatim quote, but back to the same concept. But now Alfred's got the gun to his head, saying, "If I see even a glimmer from your, you know, f- you know, from either ring, I'm going to pull the trigger." Uh, you know, Jessica's like, "Oh, it's the video signal that hypnotized him." Uh, Alfred's kind of like drooling at the mouth now, pretty much, and Batman's kind of talk- trying to talk him down. And eventually, Batman realizes that's not going to work, so he kind of grabs Alfred just in time you know, as a gun goes off, and Jessica encases Alfred in, in green energy, but Batman basically use, uses some trigger words from a from a John Donne poem, which it, it's so convenient. Batman had that anti-hypnotism thing already built into Alfred. <laughs> you, you wonder when he would make him just like drop trial and do the funky chicken too, but that might be a different poem. <laughs> Maybe that's a Shel Silverstein poem. Now you have the funny but you know awkward moment where the gun's just sitting there on the floor and and Simon and Batman are just looking at each other and not saying a word and Simon accurately points out it's the worst when he doesn't say anything. <laughs> Batman pretty much then you know he he goes back to work trying to figure out everything about this and it's kind of like you know the 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 bat you know the bad Batman videos are just propaganda, but they're encoded with you know with Sinestro core energy frequency detected by your rings. You know they go viral, but only a handful of people go mad with terror. Why? And basically, this is when they're able you know they're able to. Batman believes there's a pattern to it that it's not random, but you know the spiked videos were served from a fake, pro, you know from fake proxy addresses, and they basically all lead them back to the, uh, to what, what was it the industrial the indus- what was the 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 industrial, the industrial yeah. area of, of Gotham. Um, Simon, being you know a typical blockhead, is like, why don't we just go down there and blow some stuff up? Batman's like, you got to wait. Uh, and then I, I like this little exchange. You know, Simon kind of apologizes for what happened with Alfred. He started then then, then like Bat, Batman pretty much doesn't say a word, but so Simon just keeps going on and on. All right, all right, I have the gun because I'm afraid. It's like you know. It's like, I'm afraid the ring isn't good enough or strong enough to stop what's coming next. And finally, Batman says something which is pretty relevant. It's like, you're not afraid the, the ring isn't good enough. You're afraid that you're not good enough. But you'll never know if you don't put yourself to the test, pretty much, or you don't bet on yourself. A cute little moment when the ring calls to Jessica in Spanish, and she, te- and she tells it to speak in English. Uh, and they have, very interesting here, you have the, there's a, what, you know, the code yell, you know, 
you know, code yellow 12, fear, you know, fear level spiking and every, and code yellow one, Sinestro core detected. And it kind of keeps going back and forth with, you know, Sinestro, you know, Sinestro core detected and then saying, you know, the code cancels stand down and it's driving Jessica and Simon crazy. And they pretty much are asking the ring. It's like, if one, one way or the other, is a, is it the Sinestro core? Is it not the Sinestro core? You know, what, what's going on? And then at this point, they, they've realized, you know, they've, they find the, the scarecrow in his little machine uh, Scarecrow's all happy that Batman is here. It's like he can, you know, he can basically he can he can feel fear now. And he, he goes, he wants to cry. This is joyous. You know, I want him to feel it. I want the bat to, to feel fear. So he cranks up his his fear machine, and pretty much every everybody feels it. It re, you know it really hits. He really hits Simon and Jessica hard while Batman and Scarecrow are duking it out. So we have a little glimmer of no pun intended of Simon's fear, which of course is a a little too predictable based on his background. We see something happening to his to his family. We basically see like some kind of, I guess, pseudo concentration camp or a, a detainment camp for Muslims and things like that. And and just the thought going through Simon's head, you know, the, the ring it has failed me before. It's going to fail me again. And basically, the you know the, the the fear talking to him is trying to convince him, oh, you can't depend on the ring. You need to depend on the gun. You need to, it's all, you know. Playing up on his weakness, on his fear. <laughs> I like Batman. What is he doing? He's gonna kill us all. Use the ring, not the gun. <laughs> but Simon overcomes his fear, creates a, a huge Green Lantern energy constructed gauntlet, pretty much that smashes into Scarecrow's machine. It destroys it. Uh, at that moment, pretty much Scarecrow, pretty much is done at this point because he, he can't feel fear anymore. He's completely done. He's e- he's easily detained at this point. All the people that were caught up in the in a bad Batman fever pretty much come back to their senses, and Batman points out that I'm not I'm, I'm here to help you. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm always here to help you. Uh, so, Commissioner Gordon points out, you know, straight you know straight straight back to Arkham, and and that, you know Jessica and Simon seemingly want harsher punishment for you know for for Scarecrow, but Batman points out that he's an addict. You know, he he needs help. That. And Batman has a moment, I guess, coming clean here, saying that I feel fear too sometimes—not personal fear, but basically fear that he's, you know, that that you know that, that the city's going to slip through his fingers, that he's basically not going to be able to save the city from all from all, everything that he wants to save them from. Uh, Simon, we have this big, I guess, big in quotes, I guess, when Simon has his epiphany and he he gives up his gun. It's like I'm a Green Lantern. My strength is my willpower. It's like. I don't need this anymore. He offers it to Batman, and I like that. Batman says, I don't want it. <laughs> Commissioner Gordon, oh, I think I'll take that. <laughs> he takes that. And this, and this, and that, there always has to be one part of these storylines that make you want to bang your head against the wall. And, and, and this is the one. Batman Batman takes him aside. He basically takes Simon aside and, kind of, and says, you know, I don't like, you know, I don't like Green Lanterns at all, pretty much, but, you know, but I like you. I can work with you. You know, I don't like Hal because he's a glory hound. I don't like Guy, you know, because he's, he's an idiot. does, of course, conveniently enough, which is the problem here. He doesn't mention John, and he doesn't mention Kyle, two other guys that he's worked with, especially Kyle, that he had a similar conversation with in the past. But he basically makes it sound like, you're my Green Lantern, Simon. I can work with you. But it doesn't mean that – but you can't relax. You pretty much still have to earn it, and you just have to keep going forward with it. Uh he goes. One day I'm gonna call, and you're gonna answer. You got it. And, and 
And Simon's like, oh, wow. It's like, I don't know whether to be honored or terrified. And as he, he keeps rambling on at this point, Batman's gone. And just at that moment, Raimi, through Jessica's ring, contacts them and says, "I good, I need, I need, you know, I need you back. I need both of you back. There's a mission of utmost importance, and I need my Green Lanterns." And we see the kind of distorted versions of Raimi's, of Raimi slash Volthoom's energy constructs, and how of Simon and Jessica, how those they're warped, kind of like Raimi himself is is warped, looking warped, and we know he's warped on the inside because he's Volthoom. Next issue, the last testament of the First Lantern. Did it feel like to you that we got this two issues of storyline just for the sole purpose of getting rid of Simon's gun? And combination of getting rid of Simon's gun and probably having that little crappy scene I just described where Batman gives his good housekeeping seal of approval of Simon Baz. Simon Baz the criminal, you're my Green Lantern. (laughs) I'd rather deal with you than anybody else. Yeah, that that at, at that moment didn't happen. I would have liked this arc a lot more. That it was such a that that is kind of the that's kind of like the equivalent of the the guy Arkillo fight <laughs> in 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 Hal in the core. It's like give me it's like yeah right, give me a break. Uh, so yeah, it, it would have been better if like if Batman didn't say it. Like if he slipped him some sort of bat communicator or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or maybe, that. or maybe, see, it would have been di- to me. It would have been different if he acknowledged Simon's potential without friggin' dissing the other guys in the process. That was the problem. I understand. See, the stuff with Guy, yeah, we know. But then again, as we pointed out, as was we pointed out in the Hal uh, in the Court, the 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 one, the last issue, the, but the the blue, the Quest for Hope arc. This isn't the same guy that that used to interact with Batman. This isn't the one... Pu- you know, yeah, we know they don't get along, they're never going to get along, but this isn't like one-punch guy Gardner anymore. That's not this guy Gardner. He's not, he, he's he's irritating, but he's not a, but he's not a real dick. And he's not really an idiot. He does... He, he may, he, he, he's not a thinking man's Green Lantern, but he's not really an idiot. So, but... You understand a little bit of how, but, you know, Batman and Hal don't have the animosity that they used to, and the fact that you that he doesn't that he conveniently doesn't acknowledge John or Kyle because because there's no real easy dismissal or dismissive comment you can make about either one, so they're conveniently left off, which just to me makes them stand out more that they were over that they weren't mentioned. I I just yeah I mean I don't know it just I don't know it's just it was forced. There were things in this art in this issue that were forced. There were some cool things. I do like Jessica. I do like you know the, the continual growth between the relationship between Jessica and her ring. Or that's really cool. The ring calling her Jaybird, stuff like that. Speaking in Spanish. Yeah, speaking which is kind of which is really interesting. And I don't know. I mean, we assume that, that English was her native. What you know, what is her first language? I guess maybe. But then the ring never talked to her in Spanish before, and has always talked to her in English. So why would it? Unless. Unless you want to go down the road that the ring is really make the ring is not just forming a relationship with her, it's like really, really working hard to try to form a relationship with her. So it's like trying to do stuff that's going to endear itself to her, and then maybe you could justify why we try to be kind of be slick and talk Spanish to her. But it, it seemed kind of odd to me when their entire relationship is English. She speaks English, 
And the mere fact that she tells it to speak English would actually point point to maybe that Spanish wasn't her native language, or she's not as fluent in Spanish as she is in English. So that it's it's, it's interesting. That's that's interesting. There has to be there's an ex. I'd be really curious what the explanation for that, what the thought process was, and why the ring did speak Spanish to her there. But I do love the fact that that they have a they have a special relationship that we haven't really seen in between any ring and its bearer so far, and I kind of like that. Hmm. I don't think it. I don't think it makes a lot of sense why only these two would have it. Why we haven't seen this really played up before, without you know, unless we get an explanation. But I, th- I like it, and I think there should be. They should have always been more of this. I mean, like especially like a look at Hal and the ring that he created, which of course now they're they're barely even touching on it. Other than when Hal makes a comment about how this, how this makes me like hot shit because I made this ring myself. But we, but it's not like they've delved back into the idea any more about how he became Will and what that really means. They haven't even touched upon that lately. So, so hmm. sorry. No, no worries. Uh, I don't. I don't really, honestly, I honestly don't have much else to say about this. The the only things of significance that we've already kind of touched on, the, the, there's not much here for Jessica other than her and her ring, and there's not much here for Simon other than the uh, idea that we're supposed to be giving given a reason for him to get rid of the whole gun concept. Outside of that, I don't see much, like, there's nothing here in terms of Batman that we're supposed to come away with, because let's face it, the reason people are reading this issue is for Green Lanterns, not for Batman. So what's happening to Batman in this issue in any way, shape, or form is not going to affect him in any of his titles. So we're not really supposed to be taking anything away for Batman, other than what we said at the very end, where I'm going to call on you one day. Right. Yeah, I, I did I did like... As I just completely went blank. Uh, I did... I, I think you're. Let me go with this thing first. I do agree that really there wasn't much for Je- for Jessica to do in this arc except be comic relief. And I think it might be a way of trying. Even though he starts out kind of a jerk, it might be a way of t- kind of toning down Simon's. Again, trying to you know kind of tame Simon a little to kind of get him back more in line with the Simon that we first met. But what I what, what I started to say was I kind of like Scarecrow being able to tap into the tap into the fear, being able to figure it out a little bit more. I kind of like that. It's not, re- and it's not like a crazy concept. It's not like somebody who who is not, who does not feed off of fear, and someone who doesn't, hasn't had contact with the ring. F- like, it's not, not, it's not like someone who only had contact with the ring for like an hour or something, one time, and it's like, oh. Almost like how they had Lex Luthor when he when he was obsessing about the orange ring, you know, after, after he lost it. Briefly, af- after Blackest Night. That I, it makes sense because of his power set, because of where you know how important feeling fear, let alone controlling it, is. It makes sense, and the fact that he's been a, multi, a ring bearer multiple times, it would make sense that Scarecrow would kind of be able to at least figure out something. Makes you wonder if he'll figure out something more, or kind of take what he take what he he has done and maybe take it to another level down the road. Hmm. But, well, is there anything else you want to say about these two issues? I don't. I don't want to shortchange him, but at the same time, I honestly don't feel like there's much else here to dissect. No, if you want to, we can go straight into the, straight into the, the, the much more interesting issue. All right, uh, Green Lanterns number eighteen, the last will and testament, <laughs> the last <laughs> testament of the first lantern. His, his um, will would be interesting to read, though. <laughs> 
writer Sam Humphreys, pencils Robson Roca, inks by Daniel uh, Henriquez, colors by Alex Solazo, letters Dave Sharp, cover by Leo Mac- Ma- Thank you. Variant cover by Emanuela Lupacino and Michael Atavant, which I actually like better than the regular cover. Assistant editor Andrew Marino, editor Mike Cotton, and each EB. Did you? Which cover do you have for this? I have the one with Volthoom having the, the, the lantern shooting out of his chest. The more painted type cover. Yes, the painted cover. Did you see the other one? Probably, but I don't remember which one was it. It's Necron in the background with uh, Volthoom as the first lantern, like with all the emotional spectrum veins on him. Yeah, I do remember seeing that. Yeah, that, I, I can understand why that's a better cover than this. Yeah. Uh, so we open up with the confrontation between Volthoom, the first lantern, and Hal Jordan. He says, you know, there I am with the power. In, by the way, guys, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading. Um, <clears throat> there I am with the power of God, not even the seven lantern could stand against me even Hal Jordan the one they said was the greatest lantern of them all but then I died and we see him in the dead zone singing a song to himself as he's approached by Necron he says thanks for letting me do that I don't imagine you get much singing here in the dead zone but it's one of my favorites from when I was a kid and Necron says Volthoom do you not know what you are um, he says, I am the first lantern. I am the acolyte of the spectrum. I am my mother's son. And we flash over to Earth 15 in the year 3079 AD at the end of the world. He says, we were scientists, my mother and I. I followed her in her footsteps. She was my hero. We discovered the emotional spectrum together. We invented the travel lantern, an experimental device for infinite exploration. Um, uh, his mother shoves the lantern into his hand, says, use the lantern, you must go far away. She dies. The lantern takes her, her um, him away from her and says, go now, find a way to save us. Uh, and everything dies except me. The travel lantern was a complex device, a miracle, really. It could travel in three directions. And we see a travel lantern directions map, distance, time, and multiverse. Um, he says, it wasn't easy to master. I had to learn fast. How long was I jumping for at first? Days, weeks, just trying to stay alive. The strain was incredible. He finally pops out onto some desert planet, uh, and he says, if I was alive, there was hope. I could use the travel lantern, travel the universe, the time stream, the multiverse, until I found a way to save my Earth. I had to find a way to save my home. I became the acolyte of the spectrum, traveling from world to world, spreading the secrets of the emotional spectrum like seeds across a valley. Seeking scientific civilizations, hoping that one would create a device I could use to stop the mysterious destroyer pulsar from destroying my Earth. Something to save my home. On Earth-17, they used the emotional spectrum to try and resurrect plant life. Not what I needed, so I moved on. On Earth-47, they used it to make beautiful music. I moved on. On Earth-3, a wizard named Mordru fused my, a piece of my soul to create a power ring. But we had a, a dispute. I moved on fast. So many Earths, so many eras. I never gave up. I had to find a way. Until finally, on Earth Zero, the planet Maltus, 10 billion years ago, finally I found a world up to the task. The Maltusians would become the guardians of the universe, but back then they were brilliant scientists. Um, I was awed by their intellect, their curiosity, their drive. Those were happy times. They were so dedicated to scientific discovery, they divorced themselves from emotions. 
poured them into a lantern of their own creation. They called it the Great Heart. They were the perfect partners. I felt like I was finally getting closer to home. I had no idea how wrong I was. And we see the Guardians uh, singing a, saying a chant, singing whatever. Um, it yeah. says, for logic's gift and wisdom's sake, the bond of heart and mind we break. From passions, Paul, we must awake our hearts, emotions we now forsake. And they pour all their energy into the, uh, a lantern. And uh, we did it. We are finally free of emotion. What's happening is somehow, but their great achievement produced an unexpected result. It shined brighter than anything I'd ever seen. And the Guardians say there in the center, it looks like a ring. And Volthoom says, stay back. And he lunges for it. Um, uh, it says it was the first power ring, the mightiest of all rings. Its power was beyond a lowly human, but I wanted it anyways. I was the first one in the universe to wear a power ring. It changed me forever. I became Volthoom, the first lantern. Me and the Malthusians, the guardians of the universe, we altered the course of the cosmos forever. I became a source of order and security. The ring vibrated with power. I could feel it in my bones. This was the device I was looking for, finally, but it needed work. They implanted the great heart within my chest to give me a direct connection to the emotional spectrum. I made them a deal. I helped them perfect the technology. And in return, I could take the ring back to my earth, save my planet, and I could go home. So I left them, let them perform their experiments on me. I didn't think of the cost. Me, I just started slipping. Just little things here and there. The main line to the emotional spectrum was too intense. It was breaking me apart. I tried to hide it from them, tried to play the hero. It's hard to remember what happened next. Raimi, the most brilliant of the Guardians, he was my friend. He lied to me. I didn't take it well. All the Guardians betrayed me. They destroyed my travel lantern, stranded me in this dimension. They wouldn't let me go. I should be more generous with myself. I lost my planet. I traveled through who knows how many dimensions. I was hooked up directly to the emotional spectrum. Is it any surprise I tried to kill them all? They had to create the Green Lanterns to defeat me. The first seven... After that, the Guardians locked away the rings for billions of years. They declared the secrets of the emotional spectrum too dangerous to be free, just like me. Raimi, my own friend, created a prison to hold me. He called it his Chamber of Shadows. Escape was impossible. I couldn't go home. I couldn't save them. I couldn't save her. I failed. The first billion years were the hardest. It gives you a lot of time to think about everything that went wrong and who was responsible. After two billion years, I wanted to die. I prayed for it. Death was all I could think about. But I didn't die. Why? Even after five billion years, I live. Six billion. Seven. Eight. Nine. But at ten billion years, I got out. Ten billion years in the same room. When I was free, I went to a little over the top. Can you blame me? You know what happened next. I became a god. I fought the Green Lanterns. You killed me. I never got home. I didn't save my planet. I broke my promise to my mother. This life is torture. Ten billion years is too long. Let me rest. Do it. Destroy my soul. Kill me. I'm begging you. And Necron says, no. And Volthum asks why, and he says, do you not know what you are? You are beyond my reach, human. How do you think you lived 10 billion years? Already the emotional spectrum is pulling you back to the realm of the living. And uh, Volthum says, I'll do anything. Don't do this. I don't want to live. And Necron says, your bond with the emotional spectrum is profound and permanent. As long as there is light in the universe, Volthum, you will never die. And Volthum is sucked back into the universe, and he's floating out in the universe for days, weeks, just trying to die. The sting of dust, the burn of ions, and the light. I curse the light. It's not a rebirth. It's a second death. I curse the guardians for betraying me, destroying my travel lantern, for chaining me to the light, for robbing me of everything, even my death. 
and then we see Raimi running from the destroyers or, or the dominators, as we saw in the beginning, the beginning of the uh, first uh, issue of the Green Lanterns. And uh, he says, no, how could it be? It's Raimi, and he has a power ring. If I cannot die, I will have revenge on those who betrayed me. I am the first lantern, and I will be the death of the Guardians. Booyah. Really good issue. Mm-hmm. So we get a couple things. We finally get a definitive, although brief, explanation of how Volthoom is connected to the ring lantern. You broke up there for a second. It's okay. I'll repeat that. So we get a couple of things. We get uh, one of the things we get here is a final but short, definitive answer to how Volthoom is connected to the power ring of Earth Three. Yes. Mordu grafted a piece of Volthoom's soul onto that and then moved on. That is it. <laughs> so we get that. Uh, also, think it's interesting here just to to bring it up. There's some retconning here. Do you remember what the Great Heart was? It's, it certainly wasn't a battery. True. Um, it was that thing that was hidden away that Atrocitus went to go find yep. uh, in the Red Lantern story arc. Um, so it wasn't in Volthoom. Well, it may, so have, that, well, it may have been in Volthoom at one point. And they what went into the chamber of shadows, took it out of him, and then well, went no, to because hide it? no, because don't forget he didn't. Let's, let's go back and let's look at this. Let's, I'm, I'm trying to get to that point in this when they're showing how he looked. He doesn't have he doesn't have it in his chest when he's in the when he's in the chamber of shadows. It's already taken out from him by then. Hmm. See, so he he doesn't have it in him when he's sitting there just chained up. Because okay. if he had it him, if he had it him in the chamber of shadows, he would have it have it in him now, or had it him in had it in him during Wrath of the First Lantern, because that's when he escaped. So I think they took it out of him when, when, when they subdued him and they captured him. Because that, okay. that was the main line. The main line connection is what really screwed him up and put him over the edge, which is what Raimi referred to in like the previous issue and before Fulthum did the switch on him. That's he was pointing out. Don't you remember what it did to you? Uh, we also get another retcon, kind of, here. They had to create the Green Lanterns to defeat me, the first seven. After that, the Guardians locked away the rings for billions of years. They declared the secrets of the emotional spectrum too dangerous to be free, just like me. Up until now, we were under the impression that the Green Lanterns were created in response to the Manhunters. Right. So this is saying that the man, the the Green Lanterns existed first, the first seven, which we don't know who they are. They're shown here in shadow. Um, the first seven, and then they defeated Volthoom. He's locked away, and then they shut down the Green Lantern Corps, presumably creating the Manhunters yeah. because they agree that there's a need to keep peace, but they can't rely on this emotional stuff because of Volthoom. And then the Green Lanterns are, I'm assuming called back into existence after the threat of the Manhunters rises. I would agree with that. Based on what they're telling us in this issue, I would agree with that time frame. Okay. Or that conclusion, anyway. We also get one other pretty large, uh, I think pretty large retcon here when we see him finally meet the Guardians. Because 
this thing here, this little three lines of where we are and what time and space, says Earth zero, the planet Maltus, 10 billion years ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't in Blackest Night, the secret was Earth, life didn't begin on Maltus, it began on Earth. That I remember that very yeah. specifically, and those were two different things. Here, it looks like it's saying Earth Zero is the planet Maltus. Yeah, that, I did notice that. I, that's kind of a... I, it's hard to explain that one. It seems to be something that... Yeah, it doesn't seem like it sh- that could be viable, really. Yeah. So, I'm just... Is Earth Zero the planet Maltus, or are they using Earth as a touch point to designate which universe we're in? That's how I would take it. That's what. That's what I. That's how I would take it. Hmm. I think they were. I would. I think the Earth means more the the un, trying to differentiate the universe that we're in. That's what I would probably. It's not since either. Earth is, since Earth is the touch point for the entire multiverse. Yeah, I don't. So I don't think it's the way the, they they chose to write it. I don't think it's 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 super clear. But I would say, Maltus is separate from Earth. They're just kind of trying to say this is universe like universe zero versus universe you know like thirteen or whatever. So I don't. Know. Okay. I like. I, but I, go ahead. I'm, I'm just I just wanted to point it out because the way it's said makes it seem like Earth zero and the planet Maltus are one and the same. Which could not be true. It could just be, like we said, a a way to designate what universe we're in. But we have to acknowledge the possibility that they might be meaning what it looks like it says. That it's one and the same. I'm I'm wondering when we we see the the great heart being created here and their little oath, I wonder if that's going to be tied into the paling at some point. Hmm. That's interesting. Because they are, they are wearing robes, and I just mean robes. I don't mean like their guardian garb or any. It's just strict, regular cloth, no insignia, just robes. Yeah, kind of like Volthum's robe he's wearing now, or, or the Palpatine kind of like Sith robe. It's very similar. Yeah. Uh, and just the fact that their whole o- the whole oath is about you know re- removing their emotions and forsaking emotions. So I wonder if maybe not for the entire paling, but since we know a guardian basically was behind the paling as the pale bishop or whatever, I wonder if somehow at some point this will be tied into that. And I wonder what this ring is. It's not Raimi's ring because Raimi made his ring. And uh, we are, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's fun. It's its own little thing, but there's no way that the ring that we're seeing in planet of the apes and green lantern crosses over into our canon, (laughs) like (laughs) that. It's a, a ring that exists out there. No, so, I, just, I just think this is supposed. To, this is just the first ring that the first ring that Raimi had. I mean, that's uh, Volthum had, which is supposed to be. I guess in, it's it, the ring for the travel lantern. No, I don't. I don't. No, I don't necessarily think it has to do. I mean, I don't know if it has to do with the travel lantern. It's just that was just that was created as the byproduct, right, of the uh, of them for creating the Great Heart, and we hmm. know Volthum had. We know Volthum did have the first power ring. Because that's what was jammed down friggin' Ganthet's throat, which was really stupid. Which supposedly made, was the reason, was the retconned reason why Ganthet was so in touch with his emotions as, as opposed to any other guardian. But that's, but Raimi always, I mean, duh, Volthum always had, you know, a, a first 
lantern ring, which was kind of pseudo greenish. Uh, so I think that's that's just what I don't. But I don't know. I'm not sure if it would be tied into the travel lantern uh, because it doesn't look like he was using the travel lantern a lot at, at all at that point. They just destroyed. They it just seemingly was still around, and, they, and the guardians made sure they destroyed it once Raimi crossed over. But what was I? There was something else I was just going to say related to. Oh, I want, and I'm also wondering if we're going to see the, about those those first seven lanterns again, or more about them in in the books, in the in the book. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to go over, and I'll have to go over them slowly. So I'll touch touch on one, and then we'll discuss something else, and then I'll touch on the other one as I research. But the first Earth that's named here, where they use the emotional spectrum to grow plant life, is Earth 17. Uh, Earth-17 is first mentioned in 52, the series 52. Um, uh, and it's I'm reading here on the dcwicca.com website. Earth-17 is one of 51 divergent realities, blah, 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 blah. Somewhere in this Earth's past, there was a disaster referred to by the inhabitants as a, the Great Disaster. Oh, Commander's Some World. Some say it involved atomic weapons. Some say the mysterious chemical called Cortexin was involved somehow. Little is known about this Earth, except that it is described as glowing with radioactivity and hope. It is home to intelligent animals and human slaves who have mostly lost the power of speech. However, the planet survives, and people are there are hard at work to put the planet on equal footing with its parallel counterparts. The reason I bring this up is because in that panel, you can clearly see someone standing with Volthoom. Looks like they're wearing some sort of night gear. And in this image on the DC Wicca website here is the same beings on nights riding some sort of beings. So makes sense that a world fueled by radioactive disaster would try and <laughs> uh, stimulate plant growth uh, or growth of any kind <laughs> using the emotional spectrum. And it is interesting. It's Commandy's world. So, that. Mm -hmm. so that's that. I just thought I'd bring that up since that is a specific world, and uh, I'm, I will research uh, Earth 47 while we're touching on the rest of this issue. It's 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 a Flower Power 60s world. That's ah, right. yeah. Which explains, oh, okay. Which, explain, which explain. explains the music. That's true. A psychedelic Earth where the immortal. Let's say here. Uh, da -da -da -da. A psychedelic Earth where the immortal teenage president, Prez Rickard, finances its champions, the love syndicate of Dreamworld, all is groovy. <laughs> love, love syndicate of Dreamworld, Sunshine Superman, Shooting Star, Speed Freak, Magic Lantern, and Brother Power the Geek. Hmm. So this is... This is Prez? Isn't, wasn't there a DC comic called Prez or something like that? It could be. I'm trying to look at. Hold on. I'm think. I'm, I'm looking at some images here. I'm trying to see. If and I know there was a comic called Brother Power of the Geek. Yeah. Let's... I'm seeing. An, I'm seeing an image of this lantern guy, and it says he's wearing a shirt with a green lantern symbol on it, and it's almost like you know the uh, keep calm and whatever kind of posters. It, it's, it's turn it's... on, turn in, and drop out. That's the yep. guy wearing there. Yeah. It's all. Looking at that picture, uh, assuming we're looking at the same picture, it's, it looks like it's the blonde in the background wearing that circular, almost like a, like a, I don't know if it's like a, it's the flower, the flower on the like the, the sweater or something. That's I think that's the character that's playing the, the guitar or, or whatever, playing actual playing the music in that scene with. Vogue. You are correct. That would be 
if, if by process of elimination, I'm going to say that is uh, Shooting Star or Brother Power the Geek. It's hard to tell on the picture I'm looking at whether it's a chick or whether it's a or whether it's a guy. That's so that might determine. But either way, but that's yeah, but that's that's definitely the world where. Just Brother Power of the Geek. Is it? Yeah. Yep, it's definitely Brother Power of the Geek. Hmm. At least he put some research in on this issue. Yeah. And I'm looking up uh, Brother Power of the Geek in relation to song, and I'm not seeing his song that he sings here. Oh, the Sheriff's song. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> It would have to be somewhere, don't you think? Well, one would think. Yeah, you would think. Shoot me, oh sheriff. Let's see what that says. Nope, not helping me at all. Keeps giving me, I shot the sheriff. (laughs) But, but we don't need Eric Clapton at the moment, thanks. <laughs> but I did not shoot the deputy. All right, uh, let's see. Yeah, I'm not seeing it either. Um, yeah. And it's not overly important. No, it's not. There's a couple of panels of him singing, so there's that. But I don't see that particular song. But yeah, that uh, that is Brother Power the Geek. Uh, in on the Earth 47 panel, and obviously we know what Earth 3 is. That's the uh, crime syndicate world. <clears throat> now it's interesting. It says Earth Zero. Isn't Earth Zero our world? Uh, or are we Earth Prime and Earth Prime and Earth Zero are two different things? I think they're two different things. Let's take a look. Uh, because I thought the DC Universe was Earth-1, JSA Earth-2, Crime Syndicate Earth-3, and so on and so forth. Because it seems like we've also gotten rid of the um, lettered universes like Earth-S for the Shazam world right. and Earth-X for the Freedom Fighters. Because it used to be numbers and letters. Yeah, it might, it might be... It might be ours, or at least the new fifty, or at least the new fifty-two one. Earth. And by ours, you mean DCU, or you mean ours, as in the universe you and I exist? In? No, I mean, I mean DCU. I'm trying to. It because I'm looking at it now. Uh, I'm looking at their map. Um. Yeah, we might. Let's see. I'm trying to. I'm trying to look at all this stuff. Zoom in. It's not really helping me. Looking at the map, it looks like Earth Zero could be ours. Especially, especially if you go back, if, if you click on, if you click on Earth Zero, it does. And you go for the details on it. It, it does take you to. Um, they mention when you, when when they talk about the description, they talk about it's protected by the you know the just like the Justice League, and then they they reference the 2011 Justice League number one, which would have been but the new 52. Okay. So, but 
Because I know, I mean, I know that things would have to be shaken up because since we've gotten rid of the uh, designations for letters and names, it's all just Earth one, two, three, four, so on and so forth. It's all numerical, so things would have to be slightly different. But I was just wondering because I think I, I think I remember like Earth S is now Earth five because uh, five looks like an S. I think that's the way they they sort of doing things now. And I think Earth X is Earth ten. I don't remember. <clears throat> Someone correct me if I'm wrong. It's, I thought I just saw something. Let's see. Oh. Uh, nope. Let's, let's see. I was looking for unprime Earth to see what it said, but that didn't. But prime Earth doesn't seem to match up with zero. Just based okay. on what I'm looking at, DC Wiki has, has uh, says I said. It's just cross-referencing. It says, you know, I look for Prime Earth, and it says, see also Earth, Earth One, New Earth, Earth Prime. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all one and the same. They could just be other. But it, but but it is interesting that Earth Zero wasn't uh, one of the ones that they. Let's see, what does Comic Vine have to say about Earth Zero? Also known as New Earth or Prime Earth, the world is the foundation stone of the multiverse structure. So I guess we'll go hmm. with that. So I guess that would be ours then, wouldn't it, at the moment? Yeah. Yeah. So let's say it is ours. <clears throat> um, other than that... Uh, but there's lots of interesting concepts in here. The question is when they're going to be picked up on again. Yeah. Like his mom, when are we going to... Are we going to... When are we going to be... When are we going to touch upon his mom again? Is he, is he going to be like Jason Voorhees, like looking for his mom's going to be his great motivator and everything, and all the crappy things that he does? Uh, I, I don't think so, which I think is odd, because it mentions that the Travel Lantern can travel in space and time. So, yes, he may have failed his mom and been alive for 10 billion years, but it doesn't mean he can't go cross the multiverse back to his Earth, and then go back to the point in time right before his Earth dies. But it makes it seem like he's given up on that. He's already failed her. It does, I agree. It does seem like that's not what his goal is, though I kind of think after reading this issue, that's what his goal probably should be. That his goal, his real goal, his real goal should be to, to reconstruct or... Or maybe we'll find out they really didn't destroy the Travel Lantern. That his, you think his real goal will be to try, try to to recreate or get his hands on another version of the Travel Lantern, so he could take the power that he has and go back. You know, even if, even if it's Raimi's ring, even if it's the fan, you know, the Phantom Ring, taking it back to, to do that. Uh, you kind you kind of almost based on based on what's being said in this issue by. By Necron, you almost think what his plan is is to, to try to like w maybe like wipe out all light in the universe just so he can finally die. But you don't know. There's no way of knowing. I mean, they just make it clear that as long as there's light in the universe, pretty much you can't die. So if he's really this hopeless, then that could be one of his goals. But maybe now that he sees a power ring and that he can get revenge on the Guardians. But it's quite, of course it's also interesting because he's trying to get revenge on the Guardians, but the, the Guardians, for the most part, don't exist, or he should know that they exist at the moment. <laughs> and speaking of Voltum's home, he's from Earth-15 in the future, right before Earth dies. And on DC Wicca, it says, A graveyard universe, once home to a virtually perfected Earth, 
prior to the events of Flashpoint as Earth-15 before being destroyed by the mad Superboy Prime. Now entirely barren, all that remains of this dimension is the mysterious Cosmic Grail, lost somewhere amidst the 52 universes of the multiverse. Interesting. The mysterious Cosmic Grail, lost somewhere amidst the 52 universes of the multiverse, is all that remains of the dimension of Earth-15, now entirely barren, blah, 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 blah. Cosmic Girl's exact whereabouts are unknown as it remains hidden somewhere among the many worlds of the multiverse. Um, Earth-17's Atomic Knights of Justice on, of the 21st century is on a mission to seek out the elusive Cosmic Grail, the only weapon that can defend Earth-17 from a threat worse than any nuclear war, Darkseid the Destroyer. This Cosmic Grail seems to be based on the central power battery of Oa, the reservoir of power for the emotional spectrum of willpower and channels the energy used by the Green Lantern Corps. Hmm. That's very interesting. So the Cosmic Grail is a lantern. Same or it looks, like a lan- yes. looks like a lantern. Which then opens the door. If it could either be a, the Great Heart or a variation on the Great Heart, or it could be the Travel Lantern. Hmm. And clicking on the link in here for the DC Wicca that mentions Earth-15 pre-Flashpoint. Um, this universe contains a, a version of Earth where heroes, quote, have evolved to become nearly perfect beings. Many protege heroes, Jason Todd, Donna Troy, Kyle Rayner, Zod, have assumed the roles of or replaced their senior mentors. Oh, this is that universe where they're all gods, where Kyle Rayner's a god and all Donna Troy's a god and all this stuff, stuff. This reality's Earth was visited and destroyed by Superman Prime in his murderous search for his true home dimension. He killed many of that Earth's heroes prior to destroying the planet. The Earth-15 dimension still existed, and all the non-Earth populated planets were untouched by Superman Prime. However, uh, after the events of Splashpoint, a new multiverse created in Earth-15 was replaced by Earth-15, a dimension entirely barren of life. Residents, Aquaman deceased, the Atom, Batman, Cyborg... Green Arrow 2, Green Lantern, Superman, Mar- Wonder Woman, and Martian Manhunter. So, yeah, there, I seem to remember hearing something about, like, a universe of a Justice League where all the Justice League were essentially the perfected versions of all the original Justice League members, but they all had the power of gods. And I wanted to learn more about it, but there wasn't, there wasn't like, an Elseworld story <laughs> that I could read that showed these... Uh, like this Justice League in action. Interesting. So he has a tie to whatever. We're assuming he has a, some sort of a tie or involvement in this Cosmic Grail thing. That might be something we would need to remember going forward. This Cosmic Grail concept. <clears throat> Good research done by Sam Humphreys in this. Yeah. Like how Brother Power of the Geek is pictured there and all that. Um, I'm curious as if to as if we're supposed to know these beings that he's attacking after he first gets his ring. Um, you know what page I'm talking about? Yeah, right, right okay. next to the splash page. Across from yes. the splash page. It's hard to tell, by the way. I mean, they... they on some levels, they well, they don't have wings, so that shoots that theory. I was going to say, the way their heads are constructed, they almost reminded me of the aliens that we just saw in the Quest for Hope arc. There were oh, the, yeah. the Misery Mound, but they don't have wings, so that would shoot that down. Uh, it is kind of hard based on the image, because we only get, most of the images we're getting from them are profile shots or from behind, 
and the one shot from the front is in the is in the background. Um, it might be something of relevance, considering that there's a lot of detail on this issue. But but how did you how did you feel about Volthoom in this issue? Uh, I liked it. I I don't I, I don't want to, but I think it might be the same case as like. Um, what what I was discussing earlier in this episode about the prequels, like I don't want to go back and watch the prequels, but I had enough of a line of thought, like I don't remember them well enough. I need to confirm my line of thought before I say something. I feel like there's something off about this version of Volthoom versus what we were first introduced to as Volthoom in the first Lantern story arc. Um, so I think I'm going to have to go back and read the first Lantern. I don't want to. But I feel like I'm going to have to. Well, on the bright side, you don't need to read much. You pretty much just need to read that first issue, probably. And that was one of the better issues of the entire arc. <laughs> when, he first, when he first shows up looking batshit crazy. Uh, yeah, I feel like I'm going to have to go back and read and make sure. I mean, he did – Humphreys did enough research to where, like, Earth-47's got Brother Power of the Geek and so on and so forth and Commandy's World and – the stuff with the Cosmic Grail and all that. So I'm assuming that he did enough research to get a good handle on who Volthoom is as a character. But I feel like there's something off about him, but it could just be me not remembering very well exactly all the details of the First Lantern story arc. So I, I, I think I'm going to have to go reread that before I can actually say something. But I mean, but Volthoom was pretty much a blank slate to begin with, because that's one of the reasons why, we, as we've discussed, he's a per, he's a perfect character for Humphreys to get, because even Jeff Johns himself never did much with him. We we that was part of the the criticism at the time from some people about Volthoom is you never really found out who he was, as in you know what his background and things like that. So it was a little disappointing that on that level plus of course he kind of did the same thing issue after issue until he to the very end of the arc when he finally got power to do something but i mean how as a character how did you feel about volthoom reading this issue did it accomplish what it seemingly was trying to do which was to make you look at things a little bit more from his point of view or did or did it... uh, uh yes but i don't sympathize with him um i mean don't get me wrong when it comes to the guardians and their goals and the people who get left in the wake of them making their decisions for their reasons, there's always some sort of inherent sympathy for anyone who falls prey to the Guardians and their machinations. But beyond that, I felt no additional sympathy. Hmm. I mean, I understood his point of view. I feel like I've got a better grasp on the character other than just he's another emotional spectrum type madman uh there's more of a method to his madness now after reading this but outside of that i don't really see him sympathetically so in 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 terms of uh how i see oh god i've already forgotten his name what's his name the guy that volthoom has given the was given the ring to that was working with frank yes frank I felt some sympathy towards Frank, you know, but I don't really feel that same sympathy towards Volthoom, even after reading this. Mm, that's Maybe that's just me. I mean, I don't know if you... I mean, obviously, I think it helps if you feel a little bit of sympathy towards Volthoom, because I certainly... Kind oh, of and I do, like I said, but only only in terms of he's yet another victim of the Guardians, whatever it is they do. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of torn on it. I don't know. 
I don't like know. like Atrocitus. Atrocitus is a victim of the Guardians, you know, bullshit. But I don't necessarily sympathize with him in terms of he's justified in all that he's done. No, I know. I'm just trying to. I'm, I'm looking at it from the perspective of do I? Because you mentioned Frank. Is like do I feel? Do I feel Volthoom is like less sympathetic than Frank? And I don't necessarily know if I don't. Obviously, Volthoom has done crappier things, but again, it's based on you know the motiv- the motivations behind them or what led him to that point. I mean, uh, he may have wanted to do what the Guardians did did to him, what the, you know, by infusing the battery into him. But you know, what, what were the Guardians' motives for doing so? I mean, were the Guardians really? Did they really expect things to go well and they didn't care, or did they really know things were going to go crappy and, they, and not as crappy maybe as they did as far as him turning against them? But but was he? Were they willing to sacrifice him as a guinea pig at that point just for the hell of it because they already they had the, they basically had the technology that they they needed to be able to harness the spectrum on some level, and this was just another experiment. Let's see how it goes. I don't know. I feel some sympathy for Vol- for Volthoom. I think I think he's an. I by fleshing out the character, it certainly helps. And hmm. and I guess you can understand maybe some of the relationship between a little bit of why maybe Volthoom zeroed in on Frank or could sense that Frank not just what not just that he could be useful, but maybe there was a little bit even on the even on a kindred spirit level, even though obviously not on the same scale. I'm sure he looks down at Frank completely, but but there is a little bit of similarity in and what you're trying, you know, and what you're trying to achieve, and or the reasons behind it. So. Yeah. All right. Anything else about uh, any of these three issues? I don't think so. All right, guys. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll just talk about a couple of quick things and close out. The end of the world is approaching. Soon the planet will be engulfed in a nuclear Armageddon, and the only people that can prevent this from happening are considered to be the greatest villains of all time. The only thing standing in their way is the The Justice Justice League. In 2005... Uh, wait a second, Are, are we sure about that date this time? Yeah, it's 2005. We're sure this time. Let's just be perfectly clear. I hate all of you so much. Okay, good. Got that. All right. In 2005, DC Comics began publishing a 12-issue bi-monthly comic called Justice. Written by Jim Kruger with art by Alex Ross and Doug Braithwaite, this series was essentially a Super Friends for adults. And now another group of Super Friends has come together to discuss all 12 issues in a podcasting crossover called J.L. May 2017. The excitement begins on the April 30th episode of the Fire and Water podcast and continues into Supermates, the Idle Head of Diabolu podcast, Views from the Longbox, the Pulp to Pixel podcast, the Lantern cast, the Shazam cast, Comic Reflections, the Silver and Gold podcast, The Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, and Justice's First Dawn. J.L. May, 2017. Last year, they covered the beginning of the Justice League. This year, they discuss and review the League's toughest battle. 
The coverage begins on April 30th on the Fire and Water Podcast, located at fireandwaterpodcast.com. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ, as in podcast jockey. And I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. All right, guys, and we are back from break. Um, so what do you want to talk about first, the trailers or the other thing? Well, we kind of talked – we mostly talked about the Star Wars stuff, even though if, mm-hmm. there's, more, if there's more that you want to break, break down into, we can. Not, not break down, but I did watch a video that broke down the trailer – and I don't remember exactly what video or what YouTuber put it out, so I apologize. I can't give a source here. But something very interesting that this YouTuber pointed out in the scene where we see the quick pan from the shadows of a rock out towards we see Luke standing, what we presume is Luke, on a hill watching Ray train with a lightsaber. Do you remember that that yes. particular scene? Evidently, that scene is reversed. Because if you watch her movements with the lightsaber, they are very unnatural. And if you reverse that scene, you know, reverse the reverse and, and play it the way it's supposed to be played, um, her her movements with the lightsaber are a lot more natural. That's interesting. For so, so for some reason, they reversed that scene. Maybe it's just cooler if it fades from black to her to her training. I have no idea. But for some just as a, maybe it's important, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it was just done in terms of cool visual. But for some reason, that particular clip was reversed. So, I did not know. I did not really notice that. Yeah, there's a. I can't. I, I can try and find the YouTube video later and forward it to you if I can. But uh, evidently, yeah, that scene was reversed. <clears throat> um. But other than that, no, I don't really have anything else to say about the trailer. I mean, the big point is obviously what Luke says. It's time for the Jedi to end. So. All right. So what else? You want to do, I assume you want to talk to, talk about Ragnarok then. Yeah, yeah. Thor Ragnarok. Um, I listened to your and Jim's episode, and I already talked to Jim about this on Facebook, but I I was screaming at my iPod, so <laughs> so I figured I'd, I'd bring it up here. Um, there's a point in the episode where Jim mentions where the gauntlet is, uh, that it's in the vaults of, uh, in Odin's vaults. Uh, yes and no. I don't remember him mentioning, 
I don't even remember him mentioning that that episode. I guess he yeah, did. He but... Yeah, he mentioned the gauntlet. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, There's there two. are two yep. gauntlets in the MCU. Um, and this has been confirmed by one of the Rooster Brothers, I think. Um, I, I sent Jim a link uh, to a, an article where that, that had one of them confirming that there are two gauntlets in the MCU. One, the one that's in Odin's vault. The second appears at the end of, I think it's Age of Ultron, when uh, in the end credit scene where those little various doors open up and Thanos reaches in and says, fine, I'll do it myself. Yep. So there are two Infinity Gauntlets. Thanos already has one. Now, if I'm... Because I told this to, to Jim in our message back and forth on Facebook. Now, it's always been this... I'm pretty sure it's always been this way in uh, the, uh, the Marvel comics. Whether or not it remains the same in the MCU obviously remains to be seen. But in the comics, it, isn't it that the Gauntlet has always been just a gauntlet. I mean, there's nothing special about it. It's just a piece of metal that someone designed to house the Infinity Stones. It has no special powers of its own. It's just something cool that someone invented. I do think that's correct, that without the stones it isn't anything. But I could be wrong, yeah. but I think that's correct. Okay. Um, so, it doesn't. honestly, it doesn't really matter who has the gauntlets or why, as far as the comics universe is concerned. Someone could just make a gauntlet and put it on there. It doesn't necessarily have to be the specific gauntlet as far as, you know, comics are concerned and whether or not that remains true when translated to the MCU, we'll see. Otherwise, love the trailer. Um, I'm sure I'm not the first to admit or, or say this. Had a very Guardians-esque feel to it. Um, the it, it, I was really excited by the helmet that uh, Thor wears, and I, I like the practicality of it as opposed to what we saw in the first Thor movie. Um, the way it kind of sits on his helmet, on his head like a, like a hat, and then he flips the wings down. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, um, it's, it's definitely pr it's definitely practical, and, and it would be something that again going forward, it's, it's a helmet they definitely could keep, they could use again for that you know for that reason. As far as the discussion that you guys got into about Mjolnir being destroyed and how that ends up being fixed, <sighs> I would have a perfect explanation for it if we had been exploring the MCU a little bit more <laughs> by this point. And by that, I mean Beta Ray Bill. Yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> but, that's, but that's probably not going to be a factor. I figured, I figured it wasn't, but I just thought I'd bring it up. The entire time I was thinking, I have a perfect solution for this if more of the Marvel Comics universe had been explored already by this point in the MCU. <laughs> Beta Ray Bill. <laughs> that would be where I'd go with it. Now, don't get me wrong. It's still, I guess, possible that that concept could be introduced as a fix for this, but it's, it's really unlikely that <laughs> that would actually happen. <laughs> um but still, it, it, because I'm a fan of the Thor universe, I really I, I was like, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if this is like how we got Beta Ray Bill? <laughs> oh, by the way, there's another hammer out there by, used by this other guy that also goes by Thor. <laughs> so, um, or we could, or we could finally get Throg. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, there is a Thor frog out there. <laughs> 
Uh, I think he was a member of the Pet Avengers, the Pet Avengers, or something like that. Uh, let's hope we don't get that. <laughs> uh, we are getting the new Warriors, supposedly, so... Um, by the way, that's TV form, guys, not Marvel Universe cinematic film. But there's evidently new Warriors and Cloak and Dagger in the work works, um, in addition to what The Inhumans is now going to be a TV show. Yep. <clears throat> but I love the trailer. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I thought Hela looks awesome. So, yeah. Um, she looks fantastic, both with and without the headdress. Uh, she looks really good. Um, I'm really, 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 really curious as to how Loki and Doctor Strange fit into this. Because Thor versus Hela and then kind of the distraction of him being kind of in, embroiled in this Planet Hulk type storyline, that all kind of makes sense to me in a sequential type of way. But in the scenes in which we saw Loki, you don't really get a sense of what his place in the film is. That is true. And we see no Doctor Strange, but we know he's got to be involved in some respects because of the teaser at the end of Doctor Strange. Yeah, we know he has to be involved in helping Thor find Odin. But that again, that goes to the question of where certain events take place in the, in the sequence of the movie. Because you would think finding Odin wouldn't be something that would happen too early on in the movie. But yet Thor, you know, seemingly has long hair and stuff when he's fighting Hela and getting his hammer destroyed, and that, and he had long hair, I believe, when in that scene when he at the end of Doctor Strange. So how does that fit in with him being captured and having his head shaved down or buzzed down and things like that? So unless I don't know, it, it's it's I, weird. I wonder. I wonder if uh, if Odin is in Hell. Odin's supposed to be on Earth. Is he? Yeah, he's a bum. They've shown pictures of, of of Anthony Hopkins looking like a like a homeless guy. Oh, is, I did not know that. Yeah, I thought which, he would... Which is, I think, huh. how Doc, probably Doctor Strange's role was... Because Doctor's... Just like there's been scenes of of Loki and Thor like walking the, walking the streets, which could be leading to the confrontation with Hela, but but if, if Odin... If Odin is actually, you know, Earthbound, then the question is, again, how does that fit into the time frame of the movie? Because... Because you were, unless he find unless he finds Odin and then unless he finds Odin, but he can't do anything with Odin before he gets exiled and sent to Sakaar or whatever, and then he has to come back and and fresh. I don't know. It's it's just weird because you have to assume Odin's going to be Odin again by the end of the movie, and then that's probably how Thor is going to probably how Thor will get his hammer put back together again. But I don't know. It's it it just yeah. This a time. Uh, how the, how it fits in time wise chronologically is kind of weird from the trailer, but then again, it's it's a trailer, so we're not really once we we're not really supposed to know everything at this point. So it worked. I'm also curious about how Thor and the Hulk. I'm assuming that Doctor Strange doesn't go cosmic with Thor and Hulk and Loki, like he's just on the Earth side of things that you mentioned. Um, but I'm curious as to how Thor and Hulk end up back on Earth for the events of Infinity War. If we even see them start to head back or already appear back on Earth. It could be that they appear sometime during the Infinity War movie. True. And nothing here has anything to do with how they get back. So, Well, I'm sure Thor has to get back. 
I'm sure. Th- not necessarily Earth, but Thor has to be. In a, I think we have to know where Thor is by the end of this movie. It is possible the Hulk is an, is another is a chess piece that gets taken off. That, which is one of the things I will not like about this movie, if as buddy buddy or as conf- buddy buddy confrontational, you know, slash confrontational as the Hulk and Thor might be for us part of the movie. If it's only going to be like for 15 minutes, 20 minutes of the movie, and then we're not going to see the Hulk again, then it's going to kind of suck. Um, yeah, but so I think that's a mystery too. How much, how much the Hulk is actually in the movie? Uh, but it is certainly possible he does play. A, he play may play an important, but on from real time, time on screen point of view, only be on screen for a small percentage of the movie. Be important, but only small small screen time, and then then we don't necessarily know what happens to him or something, and then we won't see him again till Infinity War. But, no. I liked it, though. Uh, I thought it was interesting, and I'm curious to see how uh, the hammer gets put back together. I'm. Uh, it was mentioned in your conversation together, but I'm going to go ahead and call it now. It's not going to be Doctor Strange turning back time. Yeah, I don't think to, so. Yeah, I don't yeah. that's not going to have anything to do with how Mjolnir gets fixed. If, if it's even Mjolnir that gets fixed, maybe another one is forged. Yeah, that and again, is, that's that's why I was thinking. That's why I was I, I kind of went to the Beta Ray Bill concept uh, is not necessarily Mjolnir being fixed, but another hammer being created. It's possible. It certainly is possible. <clears throat> yeah. But other than that, I don't have much to say about it. Like the music, especially that particular song, <laughs> "Hammer of the Gods." <laughs> um, it's appropriate. That's right. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's, it just looks awesome, um, and I'm stoked for it. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. I, I am definitely looking forward to it. And the final thing we were going to discuss, because Mark brought it up several episodes back, but I hadn't yet watched it. I have, since I've been unemployed, <laughs> I, I have finished Iron Fist. So I'm all caught up on my Marvel Netflix cinematic universe stuff. Actually, I'm all caught up on all Marvel stuff since uh, I just watched the most recent episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. too. Which, by the way, is my current favorite TV show. Flash is now all about, oh my god, Iris is going to die. How are we going to save Iris? And it's every episode is about that. And Arrow is getting better, but I'm not quite there with it yet. Legends of Tomorrow is done. Magicians, it's already over for this season, so... Of all the shows I'm currently watching that are currently airing, freaking Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is phenomenal right now. It's my by far my favorite TV show. Which <laughs> says a lot coming from where it was <laughs> when it first aired in season one. <laughs> Have you been watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., by the way? No, I still haven't gotten into it. Okay, yeah. Um, this season, they're, doing, they're dealing with the life model decoy stuff. Well, that's good, at least. Mm-hmm. So LMDs are now a thing, technically, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, since supposedly Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. ties into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Although, I haven't really seen any mention of uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff in the MCU, more Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. mentioning the MCU and not the reverse. So, But technically, if they want, LMDs are a thing now. But anyways... um, so, Iron Fist. What did you want to talk about with Iron Fist when you first brought it up a while back? I thought the only I thought the only thing we talked the last time. I thought the only thing that I really wanted to talk about was the fact that it seemed like that show was getting a whole lot of hate. 
and, and a lot of it had to do with a huge amount of it. And again, you have you have to move aside the uh, fight choreography because that's a whole different kind of criticism. I mean, I'm not, that which but, I agree with. Yeah, the I, fight chorus. It's not bad, but it's not impressive. Yeah, I agree. That's why I want to say I want to put that put that asterisk right away. That's a completely different criticism. But a lot of the criticism was about how slow it was and how nothing was happening. But there was so, but there was so much, but there were so many plot points and so different, so many things to me that were resolved in a matter of a couple of episodes, and then they moved on to other plots plot points and then they resolve those and then they kind of reintroduced others but move so i just i just i guess yeah the first episode was slow but a lot of first episodes in this and in, in these shows were slow i mean luke cage we really i mean we know luke cage really dragged towards the end once they switched villains in luke cage it really it really kind of like skipped a beat uh and jessica jones was not exactly thrilling in the first episode either if not for, and david tennant is what made that show you know really bearable so I've actually, uh, I've, again, I've been unemployed. Don't get me wrong, guys. I'm, I'm uh, applying for jobs and doing my stuff, but uh, there's only so much time uh, out of your day. You can't really spend eight hours a day applying for jobs the same way you apply. You actually work at a job. I guess you could, but uh, the, you'd be never mind. <laughs> you guys get what I'm saying. But anyways, I've actually rewatched both Jessica Jones and Luke Cage as well. Um, uh, in the month of April, but um, <clears throat> I agree the pacing of Iron Fist is slow. I would be tempted to. I'm not saying, but I'd be tempted to say it's the slowest of all the shows. But my problem with the people who criticize Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and the show for being uh, slow is they're comparing it to the MCU. And how action-heavy the MCU films are. First of all, there's a difference between film and television that you have to automatically account for. You can't have the balls-to-the-wall action of a movie in every episode, even a only 13-episode run, of a TV show. It's not possible. And it may be possible, but then you're not going to get very much substance. I liked the substance of all of these shows. To me, the, the slowness of these shows helped these shows. In Jessica Jones, not only are you dealing with the actual you know, mind control abilities, but you're also in, in kind of dealing with Jessica's own internalized fears and emotions. And, I mean, let's just be honest, in the... PTSD of being raped, of being, you know, uh, used, of the way she feels for Luke versus her involvement in Luke's wife's death, uh, her role in all of this, her conflicting emotions between what she really genuinely feels for Luke versus who she is and what she's done, and is she responsible for what she's done. And how all these other people get sucked into her world and her feeling of responsibility for all of that versus how they fit into it and how they want to be in there. Like, for instance, she's trying to keep Patty out of trouble, or Patsy, um, Trish, out of trouble, but Trish wants to be there for her. Okay, And what's the role of Hogarth in all of this? In Jessica Jones, Hogarth comes off ABCD, but in Iron Fist, yep. she's a different person. The development 
of a character like Hogarth, you wouldn't get without the way they pace these shows. I'm sorry, but it wouldn't make any sense to go balls to the wall, all episodes of like Jessica Jones and, you know, very stringent on who the character of Hogarth is to suddenly you get this version of Hogarth. You would, it would make no sense. But because of what happens gradually, there's a keyword, gradually with Hogarth in the progress of Jessica Jones versus what you can kind of assume happens to her between the end of Jessica Jones and the beginning of Iron Fist. Like she's sort of on the path to trying to be a better person and redeem herself and so on and so forth. There's because of that, there's more depth there. Luke Cage. One of the things I love about Luke Cage is not only his backstory and his feelings for Reva and how they actually change towards the end. Once he learns more about who she is and what her goals are and blah, blah, blah. I also like how, what they did with night nurse with Claire. Claire is, Claire is this obviously the 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 Nick Fury of the Defenders. She's going to be connecting all of them. I read an article saying that it's actually going to be that somehow all of these characters have a connection to the Hand, which I don't remember seeing the Hand anywhere present in Luke Cage or Jessica Jones, but whatever. Um, in Luke Cage, you know Claire is a big part of that series. I liked learning about even though he dies. I like learning about Pop and how he influences Luke. I like learning about, uh, what's his name, who's playing chess in there all the oh, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I like learning a little bit about him. He's actually, we don't get a lot of backstory on him, but I liked, I liked who he is as a character. I liked seeing Chico at the beginning. I like learning a little bit about um, what's her name in Cottonmouth and how they grew up. I liked, I liked learning about all these various intricacies. And one of the things I really liked about... Um, Luke Cage, I'm a white guy, I know, but I liked learning about uh, the the black culture, you know, and how what Harlem should be versus what it is, and how people are fighting for it, and how there's a right way to fight for what Harlem should be and a wrong way to fight for what Harlem should be, and we see both of those, you know, we see what um, is it Maria? Is that her name? Mariah? What's her name? Oh, the. the Cotton Mouse cousin? Yeah, uh, Alfie Woodard's character. Uh, I don't. What, what, everybody I knows. If you've seen the show, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's Mariah. I thought the way she's fighting for what Harlem should be, she may have the right idea, but she's going about it in the wrong way, and it's getting the bad results. And versus Luke, who's not from Harlem but fighting for what Harlem is and what it should be and the way those two ideals clash and the culture of that. And you not only get that, but they know it's a part of the show and they do it purposefully in such a way that they even go so far as to make sure the music is a part of it. The specific bands and songs and stuff that they choose for Cottonmouth's little Harlem's Paradise Club. And I've actually got the soundtrack for Luke Cage on vinyl. So, I mean, just like there's so much subtlety in these shows to focus on and appreciate instead of just trying to barrel through all these episodes and wait for the big action beats and how it ties into each other and blah, blah, blah. And Iron Fist, I think there's less of it, but there's still subtlety there to be explored. I, I mean, I, I accept the fact that I'm in the minority about, about Iron Fist, but I, 
I don't see Iron Fist being particular. I don't think, to me, it's... Maybe I don't see it as slow because I actually got into I got into the storyline maybe more than I did certainly in Jessica Jones and maybe a little I don't I kind of was in, into it with Luke Cage so I, I don't know if that but to me it was to me it wasn't that slow I mean I like Colleen was such a good character that it was hard, kind of hard not to like not to like her and it's still kind of funny that you know both she and Danny are Game of Thrones alumni. <laughs> uh, though obviously she, she has a, this is a much better role for her than being one of the sand snakes <laughs> uh, but yeah I mean I don't know I, I yeah, but the, the thing that works in in Iron Fist's favor is along with Luke Cage he's certainly the most likable of the of the defenders if he's not he and Luke Cage are the most likable Danny Rand may, maybe he's not more likable than Luke Cage but he's probably as likable as Luke Cage uh, he's certainly a hell of a lot more likable than Jessica, and I think he's more likable. I did than... see several articles uh, calling Danny kind of like a selfish dick. Eh. So other maybe. people out there maybe have general things they like and don't like about all these various Netflix shows, and maybe they do think Iron Fist is the worst. But at least in the terms of Luke Cage, they don't come out the other side of the Luke Cage show with their criticism, and one of their criticisms being that they don't like Luke. Whereas I'm seeing a bunch of people come out and say they don't actually like the character of Danny Rand. See, to me, I've seen more people say they don't, they just don't like who's playing Danny Rand. They don't think, okay. he's, and they don't like, they don't think he's a good enough actor. And I'm not talking about the dumb criticism of saying, oh, he should be Asian, when of course the character we know it wasn't Asian, so he shouldn't be Asian. That, if, from an accuracy point of view, that so I, but. But there's a naivete and there's an innocence to him. I mean, yeah, yeah. This, I mean, because he's he's got he's got a one-track mind. So whenever you know you you have tunnel vision based on your goal, yeah, that can make you come out as kind of like being maybe selfish on some level. But I don't know. I, but I mean, I accept that I'm in the I'm in the minority on that. I had no, I didn't have any, I didn't have any big issues with with that show. I I, I can honestly say for me. While I did like season two of Daredevil, I thought that was certainly better than what I tried to. The parts of season one that I did watch, I like season two better. But I, I thought season the Iron Fist, Iron Fist was the one that I had the least amount of trouble getting through. I wasn't falling asleep on it constantly. I didn't have to go back and read. And I, I was, I was interested in going forward. I didn't have to struggle to go forward with it. So, but. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the people. That, maybe part of it is the people that liked the things that made Daredevil and Jessica Jones. You know, made they, they really liked about those shows or not. That that same essence isn't in Iron Fist, and maybe that's why I liked Iron Fist because I'm not a huge fan. Mostly of the mostly of the characters. I don't think you know Matt Murdock is not particularly likable in in in. in so far in Daredevil and Jessica Jones certainly wasn't overly likable, so I think maybe that's a, that's a big thing for me about a main character. I guess you have to, you know, unless they're an out and out villain and you're seeing it from that perspective. The reality is that you know that I don't see anything, and I had an issue with compared to I'd rather watch flaws and all. I think I'd rather watch Luke Cage and Iron Fist than Jessica Jones and Daredevil because I don't really like. I'll find either one of the main characters all that likable. So, hmm. um, I will say in terms of criticism and Iron Fist being worst at something, Iron Fist 
broke the rule for me in terms of Netflix Marvel. And to me, one of the best things about Netflix Marvel are the uh, title credit intro sequences. The Daredevil intro sequences, fantastically well done. The music is perfect. The Jessica Jones one, the colors and the way it looked and the music again, it really fit the tone. The Luke Cage one, same thing. And this one, I felt completely underwhelmed by the title credits. Yeah, the title credits credits were not anything special in this one. Yeah, just a, a dude kicking around. That's basically it. And it was the same CGI kind of effects all the way through. The, it, it, the, the way the title credits works, including the music and everything, made it seem like it's all about kung fu. That's it. That's all there is here. Whereas all the rest of the title credits always seem to suggest something more about the character or the plot or something. And I know it doesn't really make sense because all you see is kind of vague images and, and music, but it always got me hyped and it really set the tone for those shows. Whereas there may be a tone in Iron Fist, but the title credits certainly don't convey it. So I'm hoping they fix that for Defenders and and so on and so forth. Because I thought they could do no wrong. Because by the time we got to Luke Cage, I was just like, well, this one is also freaking phenomenal. <laughs> so I guess I look, that was actually one of the things I was really looking forward to when Iron Fist came out. I was like, I can't wait to see how like how they up themselves in this title credits thing. And they completely let me down on it. I can understand. I can definitely see that. But... Um, Good show. I don't much care for the brother-sister, either of them. I don't find either of them particularly compelling, although I do find the sister a little bit more compelling than the brother. Um, I, I actually agree with you. I think at that – to me, that, that, to me, that was when – people weren't zeroing in on that. But to me, that was, that was probably the most legitimate criticism in the beginning of the show is that you – know, Neither one of those characters were, were likable. I mean, she she was supposed to be more likable, but she still was kind of a bitch to Danny. The, even you know, even after she really started to pseudo believe who he was, she still was kind of, and and the and the brother was completely, which is kind of ironic because the brother was a complete ass until the very end of the show. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of comes, then he kind of comes comes around, and maybe that just means he's a better actor because he comes around, and you kind of, then you go, okay, he's not so bad, <laughs> but the, but you hate, but you hate, but you despise him for like you know for like seventy five percent of the show. Yeah. So the father was the more interesting character. He was that yeah. Guy, I mean, he was an ass too, but he was the more interesting character of 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 all the family. And then at the and then at the end, when she's out, what seeking like seeking vengeance, right? Supposedly, which makes no, I don't know, that was dumb. That part, that part was weird. So I don't quite. I mean, she meets up with what's his name? Um, his for, his former monk brother. Yeah, his friend, whatever from yeah. from the monastery. Yeah, who's pissed that he's not the chosen one. Yeah. It could have been me. I had to kill you with my brother. That uh, yeah. So I, the three most the three most interesting characters in the show, are the ones you really cared about. Were you know were Danny, were Colleen, and of course Claire. And, and Madam Gal. Yeah, she. But she was always kind of. She was always kind of bad. But you're right. She was interesting. She was interesting. Yeah, you got to learn a lot more about her here. Yes, she was interesting, and you did. And you did want to learn more. 
So you knew there was more to her than what was on the surface. Yeah. But I did like you got a lot of. I mean, you got a a lot of Claire. But I but Colleen was Col, you know Colleen Wing was the, you know she actually was the star of the show really to me. I mean I think most people liked Colleen even people who didn't like Danny or liked the show they liked her. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. But I don't think it's critic. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not my favorite. In fact, it's my least favorite of all the Netflix shows. But it doesn't necessarily mean I think it's a bad show. So I don't think it deserves all the. Hate. Oh man, Marvel Netflix's first huge flop. Yeah. Well, then let's, criticism that it gets. And let's be honest, some pe- it's that's just part of that is just human nature because people, whenever you always succeed, people are just waiting for the time that you don't. Yeah, there's, hmm. there's a certain percentage of people that feel that we all – and part of it, like I said, it is human nature to a certain extent, though some people it's much more – it's much more of a factor in their lives that, that they really feel – they only feel good about themselves when somebody else is doing badly or they can point at somebody else and say, ha, ha, you, you, know, you, you sucked it. And that's kind of what it is. You know, more – you know, Marvel's done so well with almost everything that just like heaven forbid when we – if we – when the time comes that we actually get a Marvel movie – that it really doesn't do particularly well. certainly critically doesn't do that well, and which I personally think is bound is 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 it, maybe again what you said human nature is bound to happen sooner or later. But I think it might come in phase four, like with Captain Marvel and Black Panther and all that other stuff. If 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 it happens, I think it's going to be somewhere in there. Well, though Captain, let's see, I mean not Captain Marvel, Black Black Panther still. Right. Is it before Infinity War? Yeah, it is. So that would still technically. So, uh, so that's still Phase Three. Okay, so Phase Four with Captain Marvel and there's something else that's already been Ant Man and Wasp. Still, I don't um, think that, that I don't think that'll be the problem. Um, but I'm just saying it's. It, yeah, I'm, no, I, yeah. I'm I, sorry. I'm 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 thinking out loud. You were correct. I, the the more diluted you get, and the more you move away from whatever A tier material you still have left that you haven't explored and you go start going through your B and B minus material, eventually you can you're gonna pick something that has very little appeal and either you're not gonna do it well or even if you do do it well, people aren't gonna care. It's gonna happen because it has to happen. You can't just keep knocking it out of the park. It can't just be, you know, win, win, win and even if it makes money, it can't just be you know, it just can't. So yes, it's 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 going, it's going to happen. But you know that when that day happens, there's going to be a lot of people like just jumping on the bandwagon, stomping on the grave because Mar- because Marvel didn't hit one out of the didn't hit one out of the park. So, well, I mean, there'll probably be a lot of people. I mean, if since at least the early word on the street about Guardians is that it's good, but not as good as the first. That if you know, but even though I think the reviews on the rate the reviews are still pretty good overall, but you know, if, if a lot of people end up coming out, if there's a disappointment vibe off of Guardians for some reason, you know people are going to jump on that. And and I have, I mean, clearly I have no love for the Guardians as an individual franchise, one way or the other. But I'm just saying that people that people who are looking to see Marvel fail will, you know, will jump on it. But it's good. It's, but I think it's going to be a while before we get that. I mean, obviously Thor is not going to really fail. I don't think Black Panther is going to fail. Uh, obviously, uh, Infinity War is not going to fail. Uh, Ant-Man is what ne- next summer, right? I think Ant-Man is the first one that comes out after the first part of Infinity, the first of those the Avengers. Infinity War is next year, right? And and, and whatever, then whenever the fourth one is, yeah, that comes out. The, the fo- I think the following year. 
So Ant-Man, I think, is next summer. I think Ant-Man and the Wasp is next summer. So, uh, Captain... so Infinity War is in the spring? Infinity War is May. I okay. believe Black Panther... Black Panther, I believe, is March, and I think Infinity War is May, and I think Ant-Man is July next year. Uh, so the, rea- the reality is Captain Marvel... If you're circling, if you're circling the calendar of Marvel releases and looking at what's the what's the next most likely to fail Marvel movie, you know, because we know Guardians was before they kicked before they knocked that off, and then Ant Man was before that did well, not great, but did well, and, and fans and critics did seem to like it. It just didn't do a huge bank. Yeah, it's somewhere in Phase Four. Captain Marvel is probably a good bet because you know, to, to a lot of people that. To a lot of people, she's still Ms. Marvel, that character. And when they think of Captain Marvel, they think of Marvel. A lot of people, I mean, comic book fans, they don't think of her. And a lot of people don't like her character as Captain Marvel in the books. So I don't know that. But she gets introduced in Infinity War, I think. So so if people like the way she's introduced, then that can solve that problem. Look look at Black Panther. Black Panther would have seemed like a moderate, moderately tough sell. But because of how people really took to that character and how it came across... Uh, in winter, in a uh, civil war, that you know that that has really upped the ante to that movie probably almost being guaranteed not to fail now because of the goodwill people have towards the character. So, it's, yeah. but Phase Four, yeah, Phase Four is is likely just like you're like for just like DC, it's like you just kind of you're just hoping like Phase One and a Half, whatever, whatever they're in now, that they might be able to get one that people and critics like together. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe Wonder Woman will be the one. All right. Anything else you want to talk about? No, I think we we covered more, more than enough tonight. But at least we made up for lost lost time and lost ground based on uh, how long it's been since we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you want to tell people how they can reach us? Lanterncast.com is our website. You can check out everything we have there. New episodes, Ring Cyclopedia episodes, Dark Star reviews, both of which have been a long time coming. We better check for a pulse with Jim. <laughs> uh, email lanterncast at gmail.com. That's the best way to contact us, along with our voicemail, 708-LANTERN. So use either one of those to let us know what you think about what we've done and things you'd like to see. Yes, we do have plans to do some of the special episodes we kind of teased. We're kind of working towards that. Just stay with us. Probably we're going to have at least another month of digging out of this uh, issue review hole before we're finally able to have a little more true flexibility in our in our recording schedule uh twitter instagram and facebook we are on all of those use hashtag glcast to locate us on all of those and last but not least itunes and stitcher on both whichever platform you listen to us on please leave us a positive review and that's it all right guys we'll talk to you later good night everybody good night